off the ball, cheering on the girls in green. I followed the Irish women since 1983. 82,000 people, that's going to be something else. There'll be a hell of a lot of Irish in that, and it'll be a hell of a game as well. Love off the ball, we really do love off the ball. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Yeah, you're very welcome along. It's the Off the Ball Breakfast Show. We're here with you all the way through until 10 o'clock this morning. If you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180. That's the WhatsApp number. You can always leave a comment on the YouTube stream. You can follow the show at Off the Ball AM on Twitter. We are still on Twitter. Twitter is falling in on itself. It's like this little black hole of... I still, I still, still have some hope that maybe might be rescued. Again, another side... Colm's here, Colm, good morning to you. Hi there, hello. Shane, good morning to you. Good morning, how are things? Ah, finally getting in the mood, Shane. Yeah, finally getting in the mood. Yeah. That's Ka- done. Kathleen, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, good. Denise O'Sullivan is starting. That's the news this morning she, we all wanted to wake up to. Yeah, she is fit and she is starting. Uh, it was Tony from Orti that asked the question and I don't even think he got halfway through it before Vera was like, she's fit, she's starting and I'm glad. And Katie interrupted her and said, I'm glad too. So I think there was a bit of a sigh of relief around the room whenever she said that. Um, she's come through all the training sessions fine. The team have another training session now this evening, which she's expected to compete in fully. So that will be her first proper full training session since the incident on Friday. But yeah, it's all looking good from this side of the world. All is well that ends well. So this was the first press conference that there was with the whole world's media that we were chatting about yesterday. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So today was the first one. Uh, it was a little bit of a damn squid, I won't lie. It was less than 12 minutes long and uh, there wasn't much opportunity to ask too many questions. Um, World media just seemed more interested in how we were going to stop Sam Kerr. I don't know if they were hoping to get some sort of insight from us <laughs> later on in the tournament. But um, yeah, I expected there to be a few more awkward questions thrown Vera Powell's way, but there wasn't actually any at all. It was all about the match and how much it means to be kind of setting off in such a big stadium I was fortunate enough to have a bit of a look around the stadium when I came in and uh, it's big (laughs) you know you hear 80,000 in your head and you're like oh yeah that's a big stadium and then you walk out into it and you're like whoa so gonna be interested to see how some of the Irish players fare with that tomorrow yeah especially the bowls because there's no there's no standing I presume there's no standing is there no it's all seated uh, there was a little mini incident at the start where our Australian host got our captain's name wrong yeah, a little bit of an awkward one. The FIFA rep was introducing uh, everyone, so introduced Vera Powell, and then she was like, and the Ireland captain, Katie McCain, and everyone was like, ooh. <laughs> and Katie straight away was like, it's actually McCabe. And even that got a bit of an ooh, because when Katie McCabe tells you how to pronounce her name properly, you pronounce her name properly. Um, so yeah, not not a great start from them, but what, was it, it was all smoothed over. Was the FIFA official Australian, or was it like one of their Swiss boffins? Uh, I think it was an Australian. Hey, there you person, go. That's yeah, all we need. So. Uh, Philly can <laughs> Philly can come out with a great one this morning. She's going to have a chip on her shoulder being hey, called McCain, hey. which is uh, pretty Philly. <laughs> I, so. I've just got that now. I heard it. I heard it in real time. I was like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, she will have a chip on her shoulder. Yeah, now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, sorry. It's very early sometimes in the morning when we're having these conversations. Fair play, Phil. Yeah. Uh, Kathleen was um, was it twelve minutes because the questions ran dry, or because it was cut cut short twelve minutes? 
it was just cut short in 12 minutes by the FIFA rep. I know the team had like quite a tight turnaround, so they had to get over to another one of the training grounds. They're not training within the stadium here um, today, so they had to get to that training session. So I assume that's why it was so short, because uh, there was plenty more hands up to ask questions. Like I'd say less than half of the people who actually wanted to ask a question managed to. Um, and it was unfortunate because, I don't know, match day minus one, yeah. first press conference of the tournament, you kind of expected a bit more. But uh, yeah, it was very short, very tight. Not a massive amount of news out of it. Katie had a nice line towards the end where she was asked, um, what is she going to do or say to the players tomorrow to kind of, you know, get them ready for the game? And she was like, I'm going to keep that in-house. But I just would like everyone to know that what you see on the pitch is going to be us giving our all. So yeah, exciting. She also put a shout out to anyone who hasn't already got their viewing party sorted. I mean, I'd love to hear what you guys have planned for tomorrow. I know you'll still be in work, but I, I'm expecting a big office showing for it. Uh, she encouraged everyone who was uh, not already signed up to a viewing party to get on it. So definitely do that. And anyone who is organizing one, please do tag me in photos on Twitter because I would love to see it. I kind of miss the fact that I'm not seeing all the hype back home. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting. I'm going to be in Joe Quaid's house. In Limerick. Right. <laughs> so hopefully he has the tally on. I'm sure he will. Um, I think everyone, you have to you have to plan where you're going to be because it's like it's, it's a random time. 11 a.m. So it's 11 a.m. kickoff our time, Kathleen, isn't it? Yeah. On, on the nose. That's right. Yeah, it's so. 8 o'clock here, 11 for you, so. Presumably there are viewing parties around. All over, yeah. Workplaces, yeah, yeah. Those uh, messages that you're getting. There's tight. loads of pubs and stuff in Dublin as well that are opening early. Um, I know there's a couple of like around where our office is as well, so. Well, we'll be happy. anyone wants a little scoop. shout out, yeah, or if anyone, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, literal or metaphorical. Um, those messages that you were talking about getting tagged in, you sent one, I think, from Blessington yesterday, and it was amazing. Yeah, there's some really, really great ones being sent on to me. So a lot from around where Abby Larkin is from. Um, that's kind of been the main one that I've seen around Rings Ed seems to have gone absolutely crazy for it. Really, really nice video from Blessington from the local football team. Uh, all the little girls kind of recorded a special message for Louise Quinn and the rest of the team wishing them luck. Um, I'm getting sent in loads of pictures as well of just people generally in their houses who've decorated the house up. Um, I've had messages from people who are Irish but living in Australia um, who are messaging into the Koi Gig account saying that they see this as such an opportunity to let make sure that their kids have that little bit of Irish heritage, especially being so far away from home and for the younger ones who maybe haven't had, don't really understand yet quite, you know, what being Irish is, or what it means to go home um, and sending me lots of videos of how decked out their houses are. So it's important at home, but this is also something that's gone pretty global as well which is quite cool it's nice to see um seeing i've been sent a few pictures of dogs dressed up as well so literally everyone is getting involved if you're not getting involved what are you doing all you're we, just a sad person all we need now is just a little bandwagon push an early mm-hmm. goal and some kind of result and uh, all of a sudden we'd all be like yeah time to go mental <laughs> yeah <laughs> wouldn't be like the Irish to jump on a bandwagon hey. at any point no <laughs> I, I'm all yeah. in favour of bandwagons life is very busy for people and the bandwagon comes along you've got to get up, get behind it oh, I'm not I'm not dissing it down I mean sure look at the Irish hockey team when they did the run oh, in the yeah. World Cup mm-hmm. I think hockey was suddenly everyone's favourite sport in the country for about six weeks or however long the tournament went on for so yeah no definitely jump on it watch it it's had a nice time. You can just have it chilling on in the background if you want. Get excited. Have some fun. 
lots of Irish around Sydney who have traveled here, whether either from within Australia or from Ireland itself. So going to be a good atmosphere. It's not going to be an Australian takeover. I think it's going to be pretty 50-50. You brought us behind the curtain in the stadium. I believe we have little footage here. Six seconds. Oh, well, (laughs) it is huge. Mm. Massive. It is big. Yeah. And it looks really well, I have to say. The pitch looks really nice. The colors for the tournament are really nice and they've done a really good job of decorating it. Um, they had like the big scoreboard up and they were testing it out and the goals were going up and down and Ireland were always going slightly one ahead of Australia and I was like I like this let's, mm-hmm. let's keep that going Manifest. tomorrow evening yeah exactly um, but yeah it's sorry go ahead sorry no I was just saying it's like the stadium itself is like a bit of a drive outside of the main Sydney area but you can get a train out here so I expect fully all the trains tomorrow to just be wedged with Irish supporters yeah do we have any idea when the starting 11 uh, will be announced or when you'll get a feel for that yourself? Uh, I feel like I could tell you right now what the yeah. starting is <laughs> going to be. I don't think it's going to change, like I was saying yesterday from the France team. Um, I imagine it'll be a couple of hours before kickoff just based on previous tournaments. Generally, it's like between 45 minutes to an hour and 15 before kickoff. So, because uh, you get a sense even, I know it's only 12 minutes, but seeing the players, is there kind of a difference in body language now and tension racketing up or is there more excitement levels? Not really, because it was only Katie that was here today. Yeah. Um, I think, I assume the rest of the players probably just went straight to the training ground, but she was just cool as a cucumber, very classic Katie McCabe. Didn't seem to take a fizz out of her whatsoever. Um, Vera, much the same. You know, I... <laughs> I kind of feel like Vera has been running out of steam a little bit the closer and closer we get to the tournament. You know, there's been a lot of stuff happening and a lot of things that she's been contending with and definitely seems a little gentler is the wrong word, but there's a there's a spark, I think, that's slight, mm. that seems like has been coming from maybe a bit of fatigue and tiredness on her side. And I, I definitely felt that a little bit more again today. Not as bad as it was last week when we were in Brisbane, but yeah. I feel like maybe she is taking on a lot of the weight of things. What has the team's um, link-ups with their family been like? Because I saw a lot of the family members catching up with players at um, the airport in Sydney, I presume it was. Uh, and even Amber Barrett's brother, by the way. I think it's Amber Barrett's brother. She looks more like yes, Amber Barrett. Than, like, oh my God. <laughs> Absolutely identical. Um, but yeah. Was that the first opportunity in a while that got to see their family? Or how does it, how, how, how has that worked? It kind of depended. So a lot of the families just came straight into Sydney. So they would have just been here the last couple of days. But then other family members were based in Brisbane or went over to Brisbane. So like I know Katie was able to spend some time with her family over the weekend. Louise Quinn was the same because her sister is based in Melbourne, I think. And she came straight to Brisbane and then came over to Sydney. So it just depended on a lot of the players. But I know like say for Amber Barrett, like when she saw her dad and stuff, that was one of the first times that she got to see him since they left uh, Ireland. So emotional scenes for them. And again, that's the thing, like there's just so much to this. You kind of, every time you get over one emotional thing of like, you know, the squad is picked and then you have all the big going aways and then you have, you land here and you're getting over the jet lag, you kind of keep thinking, okay, there's not going to be something else. And then there is something else. So how the team handle that emotional toil of the constant up and downs is going to be very interesting because I mean, we keep saying it here in the press pack, like everyone feels like we've already done a tournament and a ball hasn't even been kicked yet. So the next week is going to be really interesting to see can the team sustain their momentum. 
You have to assume it's, that's the same for everybody. And while we would have had the emotion of the um, going away, is that getting the 23 Matildas from across Australia, it's a really nice moment, but I'm sure for Australia, it's incredibly emotional. And Cathy Freeman mm. coming in, you know, uh, if it works, it's amazing. But there is also this, well, I delivered a gold medal when the entire world thought that maybe I was going to crap out and, and not be able to do it. And then I absolutely romped home and killed the whole place. And the stadium erupted and I united the country in a way that nobody else has ever done. No pressure, kids. Two ways of looking at the <laughs> Cathy Freeman thing, definitely. Um, obviously, yeah. I, you know, you would definitely be leading into the uh, um, amazing achievement and getting as much of that um, to rub off as you possibly can. There, uh, there was a Players Tribune article from Katie McCabe where she talked about that moment in her life where she gets named captain I think in the aftermath of, of Liberty Hall and also mm. is um, uh, uh, working in Nando's full-time and then a month later is a full-time professional footballer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, w- I say it's an incredible story, but it's also one that you've just become so accustomed to hearing as well in the women's game. I think what makes Katie stand out is how quickly she made that rocket from being a decent player to like a very, very good player and absolutely crucial to um, Ireland's hopes. Like she talks in that piece as well about the influence of say people like Emma Byrne and how important she was for her development. I think I, like I forget sometimes how young Katie McCabe still is, you know, like we're the same age and in my head, she's about 10 years older, has been here forever as a font of wisdom and knowledge, but it actually has been such a short, amount of time since she was working in that Nando's wasn't, you know, the Katie McCabe that is feared the world over. And so it's, I mean, it's an incredible trajectory and it's an incredible story. And I think it'll only be probably when she retires that we will properly appreciate how much she took on her shoulders from such a young age, especially with the Ireland captaincy. You know, there was an expectation when she became captain that it was going to be someone like Louise Quinn or Annie Fahey. It wasn't going to be her. And then that chance was taken on her and you have to say it, it has fully worked out so far. It's a remarkable occurrence, Kathleen, because it wasn't like she had experience of being captain at underage level either. And like she wasn't having a good time at Arsenal. She was about to go on loan to Glasgow City and then to get this huge, you could call it a burden or an opportunity. And she decided to mm-hmm. go with the latter because she said herself in the article that I didn't know what I was doing, but I had no time to think about that. I just had to act like a captain. Amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And like to be fair to her as well, she would pay a lot of um like credit to those players that I mentioned before in terms of helping her adjust to that position. And we've talked I think we've talked about it before on Koi Gig. It must have been very strange for those players, you know, Louise and Neve, who were such stalwarts in the team, have been there for so long, were older, more experienced, to have this kind of young whippersnapper come in and suddenly take the captaincy and to have the grace to turn around and say, well, okay, this is obviously someone thinks this is for the good of the team. So we're going to help her and we're going to support her. and We're not going to hold a grudge in this situation. And I think that speaks to how close this team is and how much it is very a case of we lift each other up. We don't tear each other down or we don't let egos get in the way. And I really hope they can keep that rolling and keep that going. Because obviously things are changing a lot very fast in terms of players getting you know, bigger contracts in the WSL, more media access, more attention on the team than ever before. So I do hope that is something that stays with the team. I, you'd hope it, it will. And that's one of those opportunities that they have not to follow the route of um, 
the way the men's game has gone and everybody's so far and distant and um, unapproachable and, and not really part of the community anymore. Uh, what happens over the next 24 hours? So the team are training tonight and then they have the opportunity to just chill for the evening. I am off back into Sydney on the hunt for some Irish people to bring you guys a little bit of the atmosphere. Uh, I've been given a few tips as to where the best places to find people are. And then tomorrow, uh, the team basically has the day to themselves until they have to come over to the stadium a couple of hours before. Um, so there's a couple of videos up on Off The Ball Socials chatting with me, chatting to a few players in terms of what they'll be doing. But It'll just be taking it easy. A couple of walks, a couple of going for coffee, reading a book. Courtney Brosnan said that's what she's going to be doing. She's going to be reading a book and chilling, just having a little bit of time to herself. A couple of players are going to go listen to some music. So it's going to be chill until all hell breaks loose in how, Sydney tomorrow evening. How to beat Australia in the first game of World Cup. Yeah, that's a good book. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> come here to me now. Uh, Sydney versus Brisbane. Discuss. I I did when I was in Brisbane I was like oh this school's interesting and then I came to Sydney and I was like oh okay this is so much more electric and interesting as a city Brisbane is very chill Isn't like it? people yeah. get up there at like six o'clock in the morning and then by like seven o'clock in the evening people just don't exist it's like it's very much a get up do yoga go for coffee exercise go to work very wholesome sort of city vibe whereas Sydney definitely feels like it has a bit more of a buzz to it and and also to be fair the thing that probably shifted my opinion on the two was that I came to Sydney and it automatically felt like there was a World Cup being hosted here you know you couldn't walk for signs that it was happening or even just running into people with like different jerseys on whereas in Brisbane you literally I don't think I met one person that I talked to that actually knew the World Cup was happening or else they were kind of vaguely like oh oh yeah I've heard something about that that's the there's a game up the stadium tonight and I was like well no that game's actually on in Melbourne tonight but uh you're close you're close um so I think I probably preferred Sydney so far but I've heard from some of the Aussie media who are here today who were in Brisbane after I'd left that things were starting to pick up a little bit there so maybe once the tournament actually starts there'll be a bit more of a buzz I'm hoping to go to one of the games at the weekend so I'll let you know then if the the vibe has settled a bit more we've been waiting nine months you could say we've been waiting 21 years the World Cup is finally here Cathy we'll let you go uh enjoy the rest of your evening and we will chat to you tomorrow Catch you tomorrow, guys. See you. Kathy McNamee live from Australia. It is starting to feel like a World Cup is here. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good now. This is good stuff. Like You're a hipster, so you prefer Brisbane as well? No, no, I never said that now. No. I lived in um, Sydney. Sydney, Sydney's the Dublin. I have family in both Sydney and Brisbane. Okay. So I must text the cousins there and be like, get yourself down there to Sydney tonight. Getting off the ball. He's a big fan. He's actually Australian. All right. Yeah, born in Australia, like, and is uh, a big fan of off the ball. Mm. There you go. Do we have some Amber Barrett? Yeah, we have 32 seconds of uh, Kathleen's chat with her. Do we? Maybe not. And how did you feel watching the Australians? Like, did it give you confidence going into our game this week? Did it make you a little bit worried? What were the main thoughts? No, look, they're a world-class team, you know, and I think everybody is is really, really behind them here. I think they have a lot, you know, probably a wee bit of pressure on their shoulders too. You know, their home nation, one of the people to be, one of the teams to be tipped to win the competition. So like, you know, 
as I've said many times before, we don't fear anybody and we're just look, going into every game with the, the confidence behind us that we know what we're good at and that's going to be no change on, on Thursday. The picture that we had over there was uh, obviously playing a bit of Gaelic. I do wonder, is she like our fourth choice goalkeeper if someone goes down? Is, is that what happens? Could we have had an extra player in the squad yeah. if we decided that um, we could have, we have multi-talented? There's something in Donegal, isn't there? Shims Cummins does it all the time. You know, he scoops the ball up into his hand. Playing throw-ins. Oh, yeah. Um, I've seen Cork too Megan Connolly stood on goal oh, yeah. famously for Corinthians against Wilton United she could do it again Speaking of multi-talented there's a Vicky Wall story this morning where it looks like she's not going to go back to Australia to play Aussie rules uh, just to uh, got a quick recap here uh, Meath in the second tier of Gaelic football inspired by Vicky Wall win the second tier and then go on and win the All-Ireland senior the next year she's like I don't know has it been done before it might have been done but I don't know uh, and then she goes off to Australia and plays Aussie rules and is like pretty good at this. And now the Ireland Rugby Sevens team who are qualified for the Olympics have decided that they're going to fast track her to get her involved in the squad. So uh, is there a better Irish sportswoman at the moment? I mean Rashida obviously finished second in her mm-hmm. debut last night just turned professional. Has signed a big deal with Nike. We're going to talk about that with Carl Denny a little bit later on. But this is pretty impressive stuff by Vicky Wall. Kind yeah. of unprecedented. The IRFU have been very, very smart here, haven't they? She got home for Christmas. They brought her into the high-performance unit in Abbottstown. And uh, we're like, here's our unbelievable facilities. Have yeah. a look. Yeah. Uh, kick the ball around. Throw the ball around there. See how you feel. Run a few laps. And um, clearly she enjoyed it because the contract at North Melbourne is, is going to be finished. And yeah, like it's going to be a strange one, obviously, for the for the girls in the IR7s team who helped get the team to the Olympics because there's obviously a camaraderie there and uh, someone coming in from the outside with a big profile especially could ruffle a few feathers but I think when you're in the, at an Olympic Games The feathers that get ruffled in these circumstances are always the insecure feathers and it's the same with the Ireland soccer team in men's and women's when we qualified for tournaments mm. it's never the best players who are like oh I can't believe that a really talented player is joining the squad do you know what I mean? Like so this is, this is not this is this is big time if it, it is big time or it isn't and if everybody's oh, oh we are we're, we're a settled team it's like that's not how sport works are you at a tournament are you not as only as strong as your most disgruntled feather no you're as strong as your weakest link you know Maybe, yeah. if your weakest link is, is so weak that they're getting pissed off that a good player is joining the team it's like well you're not really you shouldn't deserve to be here so I don't I, like look if there are those people then they will identify themselves pretty early and that's good it's like those people who, um, you know, out themselves as anti-vaxxers on Twitter, like, oh, thanks, mute, 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 mute. <laughs> well, she's obviously got pace. She's obviously got the ball handling skills, um, the vision. So I'm excited to see it. Like, it's going to be number. It's obviously a disappointing one for me, GA fans as well. But like, she'll be back presumably. This is this is not a handier trip from uh, uh, the National Sports Campus. To uh, me, training yeah. that is to but, Paris than it is from Australia. See these these annoying people like Jenny Claffey who uh, are so good at so many sports that they just decide, oh, I'm going to be an Olympian in that sport. Paddle, I'll, yeah, I'll do that one. And Vicky Wall's like, oh, sevens, yeah, I'll be class at that as well. So I'll, I'll just I'll just become an Olympian. But the, why not? Why would you not want to become an Olympian? So like, fair play to her. How many Todd as well? I mean, Michael Jordan tried baseball there for a while in the yeah, 90s. That's different, the isn't it? Of it. Yeah, and you can actually if you execute it. Well, the strike was on. I there's a I, there's been a revision done of Jordan's baseball ability. There was this, the strike happened and that prevented him. And then whatever whatever other issues were going on in his life got sorted out. Was he any good at baseball? I think I think there's a revision suggesting that he could have made it if 
like there uh, had been a few a few little things had to go his way and they didn't go his way and also something else happened did his dad get killed in the meantime is that what happened oh yeah and so uh, you'd need to watch Jordan rides the bus again um all that from the last dance. Been a long time since uh, since I've seen it, but mm. uh, they kind of passed over it a bit. Anyway, look, Vicky Wall, unbelievable, and it's an incredible marketing coup. All of a sudden, the GEA community is interested in the Sevens team heading to the World Cup. Somebody at the IRFU knows what they're doing, and um, I, I'd love to know the athletic profile, like in terms of the seven cone time and the reaction speeds and what it is that they've decided that they think this is actually worth pursuing beyond it being um, an amazing piece of marketing for them so best of luck to Vicky Wall and to the Rugby Sevens mm-hmm. wonder as well if Meath had gone all the way obviously the exit of the championship to Kerry last weekend I think the Sevens series doesn't start back up now till December so she's got what five months to hone her skills and kind of yeah. improve her craft um, maybe if Meath had gone all the way her decision might have been different but maybe not Um so yeah, it's a boost for Irish sevens for sure. You you want the big names in the squad, don't you? Like, improve the interest, increase the interest. It's uh, seven fifty four this morning. If you want to get in touch, oh eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. Here's what's coming up between now and ten o'clock this morning. Keith Tracy is going to join us. Talk to us about Shamrock Rovers crashing out of the Europa League last night. They're now in the Europa Conference League. We'll also preview the rest of the. Um action and what it means for the status of the League of Ireland at the moment it's a big big blow Sarah Dunham is going to give us our uh, honest broker opinion mm. on the game this week we'll get the view from both Limerick and Kilkenny over the next couple of days we have John Duggan on the open Carl Denny's going to talk to us about Rashida and she finished second last night on her full professional debut but it's also been a, a great week uh, Sophie O'Sullivan winning at the under 23 Um Israel Alatunde making the final of the 100 metres and the 4x100. Did they set a national record, I think? Uh, anyway, we'll get all the details from uh, Carl at that. And then Sue Ronan's final preview. We've been previewing the World Cup with Sue Ronan for about nine months now. But this will be the final one that we get to do. And then uh, some Lawrence Donegan goodness on Rory McIlroy in the Open from half nine. Don't scoff, please, at the Johnny Evans short-term deal at Manchester United because he is a fine player. Shane, agree? Oh, thirty-five-year-old certainly was a fine player. Yes. Would you? Would you rather? Him. Would you rather? First, first game of the season, injury crisis happens. Yeah. Would you rather Harry Maguire or Johnny Evans? Johnny Evans. I'm actually leaning towards Johnny Evans. Johnny Evans is a fantastic footballer. One of the biggest mistakes that we've had Hal made was immediately selling Evans. Mm. And uh, like, where did he go? Was it was it Stoke it's first, Brom. and then West Brom? It's West Brom. Was it immediately to West Brom. Yeah, very sure it was West Brom. And then he had. Uh, did he go to Stoke? Yeah, I think he went to both. Did he not yeah. finish his, uh, He went to both. I know he's okay. Leicester. Leicester, yeah, Shane Happy. Because I remember he was Leicester for sure for a, a while. And he's, but he's a brilliant footballer. Steve Bruce was looking at defenders and picked somebody else for more money over Johnny Evans when he West was Brom, the yeah. manager. It was West Brom? Wonderful stuff. Yeah, West Brom and Leicester. Um, so what was the order? United. Then he had loans at Royal Antwerp and Sunderland, and then West Brom 2015. So he finishes United. at Stoke. Yeah. Or, uh, he never went to Stoke. No, never went to Stoke. Went to Stoke. I just made that up. Yeah. yeah, I don't know where I got that from. Um, was in my head anyway. Oh, yeah. So he has a short-term deal to play against uh, Leon, and <laughs> Leon and Edinburgh. Fix that in post. And, uh, <laughs> and Wrexham in San Diego on Tuesday. But the second game he's contracted for is the Youth Academy. So he's basically helping out the young lads. So they're doing this to help him find the club. But it's a short-term deal, so he's registered to play in these friendlies. But I think they should give him a little six-month, six-12-month deal. No problem. No problem saying Johnny Evans. Oh, no. I, 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 I actually really like Johnny Evans. I respect the career that he's put together. As I was saying, um, when I can't remember who it was, Villa signed instead. It was like idiotic. 
and then he goes on and plays much better. Anyway, yeah. you see Bruce being bad, and it was like this is fairly obvious. He's right there. You you know, surely, surely. <laughs> anyway, maybe it was because I don't know. He's uh, been at United since he was nine. Like even I listened to that uh, like that Man United the official club podcast is his uh, wife Helen is one of the presenters on that. Like the the, the family live and breathe. Ah right. United, so because there was a link with Celtic where mm. Brendan Rodgers was going to bring him as uh, you know they had had a relationship and. I was thinking that's a really good signing for Celtic. There'll be European football for him. There'll be yeah. loads of games. I'm reminded of the time when he's at a press conference with Alex Ferguson and his then-girlfriend is working in the media at United. Helen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Helen. Yeah. And uh, then Johnny's kind of like very kind of shyly says to Fergie, like, oh, that's, that's my missus. And then Fergie's loving it. Like, so <laughs> it was like, I'll get a ring on her, son. Get a ring at her. <laughs> and then there's the other time when he absolutely effed Evans out of it against AC Milan the oh, Champions yeah. League very publicly in front of everyone. We got a little little uh, snippet into what he's like behind the scenes. I think it's a good signing. Also, by the way, there's a lot of people yesterday and the day before complaining that we weren't talking about Declan Rice to Arsenal. Lads, we did it two weeks ago for about three days in a row. The three yeah. of us were having a debate mm-hmm. about Declan Rice. It's only because, because he took so long to actually sign him that by the time he signed him it was like, oh, we've already done that. But Declan Rice to Arsenal is a huge deal. Yeah, yeah, huge deal. Not as not as big as Onana in terms of the difference that you're going to make to the team. I saw somebody has put together a, a, a Onana bloopers reel and they're like, "Oh, look at this! He's a goalkeeper. He's made lots of mistakes." Like, yeah, he's played ten thousand games and he's made lots of mistakes because he's taken some brave chances. The De Gea blooper reel, who's taken no chances ever in his entire life, is actually worse. I thought you meant the uh, the Onana doping violation. Remember that number of years ago? I didn't. Which, I didn't. Uh, that was again, uh, like, I mean, it's hard to keep up with all of yeah. the footballers who've uh, had little little doping violations. How much of a ban was it? I think he got 12 months. but oh, served 12 months in football. It must have been bad. But I think he served nine. Uh, That's your luck. Yeah, and, and ended up missing a decent amount of a season, obviously. Um, he, he says he, I can't remember the exact uh, drug. I can find the name of it here, but he says he mixed it up. It was his wife's <laughs> medication. That's true. Um, Easily done. Easily done, yeah. In so, fairness, in fairness, you know, in the dark, who doesn't accidentally take the wrong tablet? So he's so yeah, test positive for the diuretic drug ferocimide. A diuretic, of course. We all have loads of diuretics lying around. We do. I I'm it always need to. I always need something to make me piss. Yeah. So it's like I, life would be so much better if I just had access to a little diuretic because it doesn't do anything else. Those diuretics except make you piss. No. It doesn't do anything else. Don't no. look into any other side effects of it or any other abilities that it has to help you. You know, it does nothing. Yeah. See, Tracy just walked into the production box there and got the best out of context <laughs> chat ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually, His face says it. It was February 2021, the ban. Uh, Which is recent enough. Yeah, played for Ajax just six times the following season and then left for Inter when his contract expired. There was obviously all the controversy at the, at the World Cup in Qatar, or in, in Qatar as well where he plays the first group game for Cameroon. They lose to Switzerland and then he has a massive row falling out over the style of play and leaves the World Cup Roy Keane style. Oh. Um, oh, yeah. Remember that the camera yeah. keep yeah. So that was, that was a bit awkward. Um, and like he's obviously that he, he would be the number one keeper for Cameroon only for he's the, his own man. He's his own man. He does yeah. what he wants. I clearly, think, I think look, that his performance was excellent. Really, really excellent. In the, the Champions, Champions League, League final. League, yeah. So oh, it's great. If he, were to if he produces at that level for Manchester United, I think it's going to completely transform their ability to play the game that they want to do. And all of a sudden, you know, the 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 add the additions that they've made is like. You go back to the additions that Liverpool made that transformed the team. It's like uh, Man United needed a midfielder, they've got a midfielder. They needed a goalkeeper, they've got a goalkeeper. They've, they've, they're very close to signing the 20-year-old uh, Danish striker. So we oh, shall see. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, Onana, Evans, Mount. 
New uh, signing contracts. Evans. Rashford, what a core. Evans. Can I ask you a quick question? That's, uh, this came up in the office yesterday. What are your thoughts on grown adults, men and women, wearing football jerseys? My take, before you start, is... Uh, so I would wear the name of a footballer on my back as long as I'm older than them. You can't get a name. Like, some of my mates have Rashford in the back of their jersey, and I'm like, man, you're, you're five years older than him. Like, so, it's a bit so, weird. Sorry, you would wear the name of a footballer who was older than you? Yes, yes. Not your... Uh, okay, go on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not the other way around. Not um, creeping on them. No, of course. But a lot of my... Uh, so there was one person in particular in the office yesterday who felt vehemently about this. Um, and even I said, you know, if you wear a county jersey to a festival or a bucket hat, he was like, no, no. You can't wear a county. You can't You're, wear a bucket hat for us, though. Well, you can wear a bucket hat. You can't. If it's, your, if it's a county jersey. What? Uh, and uh, would you not? You would you not wear a jersey? Oh, these, these. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, come on. They're look, like nineteen nineties. Yeah. That look good. Yeah. They're good at festivals. <clears throat> but they're not good at festivals. They're, you look like somebody's only gone day release. One person in particular in the office yesterday had very strong feelings that as an adult you cannot wear a football jersey. That you reach a certain age. Who was it? Nathan Murphy. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to say it Nathan Murphy I'm fairly sure I've been in Croke Park with him in a Mayo jersey Well that's okay He says at a match you can wear it but if you wear it down to the shops you, you're, you're a disgrace basically I'd say the following going to a match Judge not lest you be judged Playing playing a match playing Astro like you can wear it um, around the house with Paolo Malol taking out the bins the house is like, um, I would say the more hipster the jersey the more acceptable it is to wear retro jerseys are, are grand so, in all occasions or, or like ter- you know third world footballing nation I was in uh, yeah Cyprus there one of the lads got a Paphos FC jersey no problem with that did mm. he wear it around to I don't know if he wore to interviews or anything but he was wearing it do you know basically Nathan he had an issue right. with people grown adults in their 50s and 60s wearing footballers who are in their 20s on the back of their jersey it's Fun a, police. It's very past remarkable from Nathan. Very unlike him. <laughs> Fun police straight out of Temple Moore, Nathan Murphy. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, the head of a guard, all right. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Right, you're very welcome back. Five minutes past eight this morning. Keith Tracy is with us. Keith, good morning to you. How are you? Very well, I tell you. Um, before we get into Rovers and the disappointment of uh, them crashing out last night, we did just, we were just talking about the Deli Alley interview and one of the, the big takeaways and is kind of been spoken a good bit about it since is the use of sleeping tablets in football and I definitely remember talking to John Giles about how he couldn't sleep after games it'd be like two, three, four o'clock in the morning the adrenaline was still pumping through his body and so you'd kind of have the blues the next day from it now that's the late 50s, 60s and 70s nowadays if you can't sleep what happens? You get sleeping tablets but uh, now the, the big the big one for me I, I generally wouldn't take them after games I, I was out getting drunk so I didn't need sleeping tablets but before games on a Friday night in a hotel you're just knocking the, the doctor's door or the doctor would come down to dinner with you and they'd just be handed out Right It would be no great deal you just say I'm struggling to sleep There you go two sleeping tablets no problem And do you not wake up feeling a bit groggy and therefore not, not at your very best as a footballer the next day? No not really The trade off is you feel if, you, if you're not going to sleep, you're not going to play well. If you sleep, at least you've got some chance of playing well. Yeah, sometimes for, for players, you just get into this rhythm of you take a sleep and tablet, you go to sleep, you wake up, you have your coffee, you go to the game, and it just becomes a routine. So, yeah, sometimes I, I never felt groggy. I always felt good. And, you know, like I say, footballers are very uh, very superstitious with this stuff. So you have one good game after having a sleep and tablet on a Friday, you do it the next Friday and the next Friday, and before you know it, you're quickly into a habit and it's not a good thing. But towards the end, I, I I came away from football in England about, I think it was 2013, 14, 
and the doctors were starting to clamp down on it. They weren't handing them out quite as readily, but you were getting them. You just had to be a little bit more persistent with your complaining. But they were clamping down on it. But it's still very, very persistent. Because I don't know if, uh, if people haven't seen the Boris Becker documentary. After his incredible early success, there's this period where he's not great and he's a complete playboy and having the crack. Um, but he's addicted to sleeping pills in, in at one stage in it as well and has to come off them and it's really difficult for him and when you stop taking them was it easy or was it straightforward or was like could you I just got through it it was you know when I came back and uh, even playing for Barnsley towards the end when I was playing when I was staying in hotels I, I wouldn't be getting sleeping tablets and I'd just be sitting there staring at the ceiling most of the night and you'd wake up and wouldn't feel great yeah. and you're just in a bit of a, a groggy mood and you're thinking, I didn't sleep well, you don't play well. And you, you sort of have to, you get in this rut and you sort of have to kickstart yourself out of it and just, you know, cop on a little bit. But uh, yeah, it does. It, you do get into that habit of just taking them and before you know it, it's, it becomes the norm. And, you know, you, it's not easy, but yeah, I think a lot of players are probably struggling with stuff like that. And it's just the, the wonderful, weird world of football. Was it more prevalent, Keith, at more clubs than others? Like I was chatting to a... a, a former professional fo- Premier League footballer quite recently and he was saying it was everywhere like mm. every footballer he knew was on sleeping tablets everywhere like, literally you, you go down for dinner at 7 o'clock uh, at night in the hotel on a Friday night and the doctor would just be there and he'd be literally going and he'd just be popping them out and people would just have their hands out would be going over lads shoulders it was literally the exception you might get one or two that no I'm okay but generally most of the squads I was in everybody was popping sleeping tablets that night and here's the thing right uh if they work for you and you're not getting addicted to them, that's fine. But if that's the only way you can sleep in advance of big occasions, then it becomes slightly problematic. Yeah, well, this is what I'm saying. Towards the end... Did you get told? So you, uh, Towards the end, they started to say, by the way, this could be a problem, but here you go? Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people... like there was At the start, when I... When I broke into four teams, there was maybe one or two lads that would take sleeping tablets. Right. Then, you know, two or three years in, it would be the majority of the squad. And then I think the doctors and the managers were starting to cop on that 90% of the squad had taken sleeping tablets on a Friday night. And yeah, it, it they did start to clamp down on it. But then, like I've had ones where the doctor would say to the manager, OK, I won't be handing out them. But then you'd walk in the corridor and he'd give you two and you'd go to okay. sleep. So yeah. it'd be behind managers' backs as well. Could, yeah. you, could you sleep without them in advance of a match? I could, I could sleep, but like I said, there'd be an awful lot of lying there, you know, staring at the ceiling, scrolling through my phone. Yeah. Eventually, I would get to sleep, but it, it wouldn't be as as quickly. You know, it, maybe it does a bit of a placebo effect in it all, but yeah, if I pop the sleeping tablet by half ten, I'm generally in bed, tucked up and sleeping. Right. Uh, okay, really interesting stuff. Let's get on to Rovers last night, which was less interesting, but um, it's a big setback for the league. Like... Um, we can talk about Rovers specifically, but uh, we really need our teams performing well in Europe. And just at the moment, for whatever reason, we're not performing well in Europe. Yeah, well, look, I, Rovers in in the game last night, I think they did okay. I think Breda Blick are an awful lot better than people give them credit for. I think on the face of it, people thought an Icelandic team won't be that good. When And, and in fairness now, well, Iceland are... are a decent international team I get it with the Faroes I get it with Gibraltar I get it with Luxembourg people half dismissing them teams but Iceland Breedablick very very good team and the first 45 minutes in Talat is what killed Rovers they didn't turn up in the first 45 minutes uh, the second goal for Breedablick I think your man tries to cross it it just ends up in the back of the net I think they're, they're quite lucky with that and it, look Rovers away form in, in, uh, in Europe hasn't been good but the way like when when Rovers get the goal away, Sean Hoare is playing the left of a back three and he's in midfield trying to press the ball. 
and you're thinking, like, even what's the point? Just defend the space, keep it tight, keep it narrow. In the last quarter of the game, then you go and try and get something because it's only a one goal deficit. When they hit the back of the net, I thought, right, it really, really hard. Now it's become nearly impossible. And they gave up three chances in a row, Rovers. It wasn't like they were dominating the game and Breedablick went bang and he went, oh. It was like within ten minutes they had three chances and a very good team would have hit the back three would have hit the back of the net three times. Breedablick managed to do it once and then they did it twice and it was just I, I don't want to say that the setup from Rovers was naive because that's how Rovers play, that's how they play in this league, but I think they should have played a little bit deeper, suffered there, don't give any space in behind, make it really difficult and try and get try and get Towel and uh, Towel and Bork an awful lot closer to Gaffney, which they did do, but they were leaving too much space in behind. They were on the halfway line at times, which for me is a little bit naive in hindsight. Rovers did have significant injuries. I think mm. both first choice wing backs um, and obviously Jack Byrne are out. And like, you know, although they have a much bigger squad than everybody else and a much deeper squad than everybody else in the League of Ireland, they probably can't afford to have the pace of the players that were missing on the wings and also just Jack Byrne's experience and creativity. Yeah, well, look, I, I get that. Jack Bourne, a, a big, big miss for Uja, big, big, big miss as well. Uh, but Graham Bork, uh, he came on in the second half of the first leg, looked really good for 10 minutes, looked like he could make something happen, played the majority of the game last night, scored a penalty, but you could see when he when he got taken off, he, he was screaming in anger, he wasn't happy, he was effing and jeffing, and that I think that was the frustration in his performance that he didn't really play well. And, you know, although there was a lot of endeavour, they ran around, they tried, but in terms of personal performances I don't think any of the Rovers players are walking away thinking I played well today you know it was it was they tried like I say it, it's hard to be critical of players when they are trying and they're running around but I just think standing on the halfway line you know 20 minutes into the first half getting balls clipped down the side you, it's inviting pressure and I think Rovers just did it too many times Roberto Lopez beaten for pace for the first Breedablick goal like his performances lately have been I guess not what you expect of, of Pico like in years gone by he's been Maybe struggling a, a bit lately. Yeah, look, I, I like I like Kiko Lopez. I like Sean Hoare and Dan Cleary. I think they're three really, really good centre halves. But when you have them three lads standing on the halfway line, they, look at they are quick, but there's quicker players out there for them. And if if I seen them three standing on the halfway line as a centre midfielder, I'm thinking this is going to be a decent mm-hmm. day for me because I have all the space in the world down the channels to hit them. I can go down the side of Lopez and. I just thought the back three were exposed and I don't think there's an awful lot of pace in the back three. That's why I think it's nonsensical to be standing on the halfway line. You can do it in the League of Ireland, but when you go to in, into these European games, you have to show Breedabick a little bit of respect, stand off a little bit, let them frustrate them, you know, let them try and keep the ball, but frustrate them and try and try and play for moments in the game and then towards the end, you start throwing big punches. But they were out of the game before they even got a, a foothold in it. Is their recruitment wrong for Europe? Is it okay for Ireland, for the League of Ireland, but not good enough for European football? <sighs> no, I, I wouldn't say that. I just don't think... Look, I, I think obviously Breedablick are better than people give them credit for. I think that's, that's the underlying thing here, but I, I just I think a lot of them didn't turn up. Graham Bork is... Oh, sorry, Jack uh, Jack Bourne's a big, big mix. Graham Bork didn't play particularly well. Ferruja would be a, a, a big impact on this team as well. And I think maybe tactically... It's like I say, it's very, very hard to be be critical of Stephen Bradley and this Shamrock Rovers team. But I think in hindsight, if he could have it back, maybe play a little bit deeper, a mid to low block, and really suffocate that space in behind because they're very agile up front. The the point about not having the pace in the back three, mm. have they recruited pace in the team anyway? Like 
Yeah, well, I, Are they a I, bit short of pace at, at this level? I think all over the pitch, I think they're short of pace. I think, obviously, Cavan is not... There's a lot of players there that are not slow, but you're thinking, Graham Bourke, good player, but he's more of a ball manipulator, doesn't run away from people. Jack Bourne, the same ball manipulator, doesn't run away from people, can open people up with his passing. Rory Gaffney, at times, he's getting the ball into his chest. He will run down the channels, but again, doesn't exactly run away from people. And when Gaffney comes to the ball, you need people threatening him behind to, to get the press a little bit looser. And... Look, there was moments in the game, Rory Gapney had a snapshot that went really close and the goalkeeper made a decent save, but like I say, the the game last night was, was quite quite a decent tempo. They were playing forward early rovers in the first 10 minutes. They looked decent, I thought, with, uh, with Bork and Towell and Pilm all committing to the press. I thought, this is really brave, but then when you go and lose 2-1, it becomes into the realm and uh, naive again. The lack of goals has to be a concern, doesn't it? Like that penalty last night's the first goal in, in what four matches for Rovers. Yeah. That that's that's a poor return for a team that's supposedly the best in the country. Yeah, and it's like I think they had sixty percent of the ball in the first half and sixty percent of the ball in the second half. So they had the the lion's share of possession in both halves and just just failing to be to be really productive with it. And they got shots off, but you know I'm not sitting here saying oh that chance they should have scored, that chance they should have scored. I think the Sean Hall one where he takes a touch in the box, his first touch is good, but. Just two or three breeder played players in front of him. He would have done very well to squeeze that past anybody. They'd one or two chances where he huffed and puffed, but yeah, the, the quality of chance that, that Rovers are making at the minute is not up to the standard that you would think. And like you say, in this league, they'll get away with that. They'll hit the back of the net. They'll right. make better chances. Because that was, I think, Stuart Burns' point that they're not being driven to mm. excellence. They're being driven to grand. And that's enough to win the League of Ireland. But it's not. it's not inspiring them to go above and beyond to reach a point where uh, they're doing stuff that they've never done before and they're creating their own sense of history in European football. Is that is that not taken into context the fact that the rest of Europe is actually light years ahead of... So Iceland, for example, you, you make the point about um, their international side. They actually beat England in the Euros when Roy Hodgson was the manager and then there was like all this kind of, how the hell did this happen? They invested loads of money in facilities. Yeah. They have loads of indoor training facilities that... Uh, their tiny population uses during the winter and the contact hours with the players is mm. higher than our contact hours and so therefore you know, uh, they're coming off a higher base and we shouldn't ignore that but at the same time Stuart's point was essentially there's no great rival pushing them and putting them to the pin of their collar to the point where they're in games like this and they're thinking their way through it or they're coming up with something different Yeah, look, I get that but I, I, would, I would be putting the mirror up to the lads and thinking right you can win the league at a canter you aren't really at full tilt to win the league but you just need to look at yourselves and de- like I know I, I played for St Pat's when we were in Europe and as soon as you go into the dressing room just the first game of pre-season you start talking about the European game so there's, there's no lack of motivation here for the Rovers players there really isn't so to be saying oh, well they're having an off week in, in the league here and there and that hasn't been great this has been coming. This has been coming in the pipeline. They knew it was coming. I expected them to raise their levels. They did. And look on paper with Rovers' league form, you could probably think this is no surprise for them to lose to Breedablick because they haven't been great in the league. And I know there's people screaming they're top of the league, they're winning at a canter, but their performances individually, their standards that they can reach, they haven't quite reached. And yeah, maybe like it, it took me years to find out as a professional footballer, you can't just turn it on like a tap. It doesn't just turn on. It needs to be an every every time thing. So if Rovers aren't getting the consistency in the league. It's only uh, it's only logical to think that they're, they're not going to hit the, the levels in Europe, and they haven't. But 
look, oh, yeah, I, I think they just need to look at themselves and be, be more driven by themselves and think, like, I want to play well in Europe. I want to put myself in the shop window and, and not worry about how the league is now. Uh, Neil Smith says, tactically so conservative by Bradley over both legs. They had nothing to unlock Breda Blick. Kenny is really lively and he allows Gaffney to peel off and make runs. Pity he didn't start last night. So... Um, what does he mean by conservative? Because I thought he was really aggressive in his press and playing high forward tempo. Like the amount of numbers he was pre- like, he only left O'Neill in the centre, uh, the centre mid position. Bo- uh, Tell, Poon, Bork, Finn, Cavanagh were all committing to the press. So to say it was conservative, I don't know about that. I'd have probably liked to see him play a little bit more conservative and drop back a little bit and squeeze and make it really horrible and play for moments in the game. But that's not the Rovers' way. I get that. Okay, so you don't think he's that tactically conservative generally then? No, I, I think he's quite expansive and open with, with how he tries to play football, Stephen Bradley. I think it's lovely on the eye, but when you're coming in and you're losing 2-1, I don't think that really matters. I think there, there was an avenue for, for Rovers to win that game last night, but I think it was more more of a grinding win than a, an open, expansive win. What about the point about starting Johnny Kenny in these games? Like You know, you brought him in on loan from Celtic and... Um, he does seem like he is a slightly different player from the other players they have. Yeah, well, I, I don't think he can play Kenny up by himself just because he's so young. I think he'd get lost up there. I think even Gaffney at times was, was isolated in the first leg. So if you play Kenny up there, you have to play Gaffney with him and then that means maybe Bork is coming out of the team. And I was delighted that Bork did play again. In hindsight, he didn't play well. Maybe you, you could have played Kenny, but I thought starting with Bork was a, was a good shout, but didn't quite play well. And look, Towell and Bork did get close to Gaffney, so he wasn't as isolated and... Look, I, I do like Kenny. I think spinning into the channels, I think he's really, really agile. He is quick and he's a decent finisher, but you know, you can't just throw lads into these European games okay. that haven't played before. So I wouldn't say... I, I'd like to see him play, but Gaffney was always going to start. Dan McDonald writes in the Irish Independent today, Keith, as well, talking about the, the Rovers' legacy and, and whether it adds an asterisk, their, their lack of form in Europe. Um, like For a team to have a proper legacy, especially League of Ireland team, do you, do you need to have a... A European pedigree as well as the all the titles domestically. Uh, I think it helps. It definitely helps for the, for the legacy. But I don't think it's the be all and end all. I think they've been been very very good in the league over the last couple of years. They've dominated. You know, pretty much been untouchable, and it's been like that for a long a long time in the league. So we shouldn't dismiss that. But again, yeah, I think they need some sort of European run, some sort of thing to get us on the edge of our seats, get into the group stages, even if it is the the Conference League this year. If they can get into the group stages of that then I think that would be a success but it's not going to be easy it's not going to be easy it's a long L slog from here to get to the group stages three games in six weeks is it? yeah yeah. yeah. now they look they've got the squad and oh, maybe the injuries start to clear up I don't know what the what the profile of um, Ferrugia and, and Jack Burns injuries are but um, this is going to be a sobering moment for them it's going to have to be some hard conversations had right? Yeah, look, I, I would have thought so, but again, I, I wouldn't overreact to this. I, I, I do think the League of Ireland is in a decent place. I do think it's getting stronger all the time. I know Rovers getting beat by Breda Blick is probably a shock, but look, give Breda Blick a bit of respect. They're a decent, decent team. Every one of their players seemed comfortable on the ball. They were all athletic. They pressed well, very well drilled, very rigid, didn't give up an awful lot of chances. So I would give a little bit of credit to Breda Blick rather than pressing the panic button on the League of Ireland the concern is they, play, so they find out this evening who they play in the Europa Conference League qualifiers so it's Klaxvik from the Faroe Islands or Ferenc Varas uh, probably have more European pedigree I guess mm. um, but that was that was scoreless in the Faroes and you'd imagine Ferenc Varas will have enough to, to win that game tonight but all of a sudden you're going into a game against a team from the Faroe Islands who have had a pretty decent result in Europe you know drawn with, with a team like Ferenc Varas so like as you yeah. say like so then I play the winners, no? They play the losers of that tie, the right. defeated team. 
So like, which could well be the Faroe team. But if you lose to them, then all of a sudden there's question marks over yeah. the league. Over the league. Yeah, again, but I think that's a very broad comparison. People saying, oh, the League of Ireland up against a, a fair Ireland team, we should beat them. I don't think it's as black and white as that. I think there is some there is some decent gems in this league and look in the in the European competition. So, look, I, I, I don't think you can throw a blanket and say we should beat every fair team there is out there. There is some decent teams. So, look, we'll wait and see what they like and see who they get. But I do expect Rovers now to go on a little bit of a run. Whether they get to the actual league stages or not remains to be seen, but I think they should win. At least a you know a couple of games. What about Pats against uh, Dudelang? They've it looked like things were going pear shaped for them, but they got themselves back into the game. Yeah, they did. They were they were dominated really from uh, from start to finish. They were poor in possession, lost the ball. Uh, they were very very sloppy at times. And when uh, when Dudelang went two 0 up, you thought this is really really poor. And I thought uh, the game. I heard somebody summing the game up saying it was a, a really poor performance, but a decent result for St. Pat's. And that's probably the best way you can put it. That they were dominated for ninety minutes, managed to nick a goal, and a one goal deficit going into Inchicore on Thursday is not the worst, not the worst uh, thing in the world. So Inchicore will be bouncing on Thursday night. I'm doing uh, the the commentary for that, so I'm really looking forward to it and very very hopeful that Pat's can do something. But Chris Forrester, Jake Mulraney, Connor Carty, all these lads that have been really torn up in the league will have to torn up. Big players will have to torn up on the night. And like I say, very, very hopeful. But Dudelange, again, are probably a little bit better than people get them credit for. Yeah. Uh, Pats have a relatively young team as well. So like, there is a possibility for these games to have a massive impact if they were to win one and to get on a bit of a roll and suddenly understand what's possible. Yeah, well, the likes of Sam Cortis, Mason Millier, uh, there's there's one or two others as well in the squad. Young Reese Bartley might even make the squad. So, yeah, look, it's it's really really good for them. It's these are the times where, as you're young, you start to think this is the norm playing in Europe. I wanted to be like this all the time. So this will drive them on to want to be finishing in the top four every year with St. Pat's and wanting European competition. So, yeah, success just breeds more success, and it, it's great to see that that average age of the Pat's team is so low and. The pathway from the academy to the force team. It's is the there. opposite. Uh, Dan and Johnny were making the point: the uh, average age of the Rovers team is very high, mm. and that's a, a team built to win the League of Ireland. But that actually they need an infusion of youth. Yeah, yeah, possibly. But look, if if I had that Rovers team on paper, you would think I'd be fairly happy. But there's some outstanding talents in there. And look, I I, I still think Graham Bork, he's he's gold return in the league has been quite good. But I still think there's a little bit more to come from him and. Like I said, Ferruja and Jack Bourne coming in will be a, make a big, big difference to that Shamrock Rovers right. team. Keith, good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. It's uh, 25 minutes past eight this morning here on uh, OTB AM, the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. Turning our attention to Hurling, Sarah O'Donovan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm great. Revel County's looking great. Big World Cup day tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, jersey on as well. Love yeah, this. Yeah. W- what is the jersey? 2002 um, Under 19 Championships so Sue Ronan who you'll have on later gave me the nod that year I haven't worn it since these are Excel lads these are massive <laughs> I can't believe they let us run around in these they're ridiculous uh, I did not know you were in a, an Ireland underage uh, international uh, yeah briefly three caps yeah from another, Sue so there another, you go <laughs> another sickening multi-talented uh. Uh, I've no ACL left, lads. Just remember, you can you can overdo these things. Well, I was gonna, you know, uh, if if I was to tap you on the shoulders as a sixteen year old and go, it's gonna cost you your ACL, but this is gonna be your career. You'd have been like, yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, a quick word on Vicky Wall. Uh, it looks like she's gonna be joining the Ireland Seven. Somebody in our comments is making the point that the current Ireland Sevens captain won an All Ireland with Wicklow. 
so it can be done. I just want to get this fact correct. Oh, I've lost the current captain of the Sevens, according to Andy Connolly, has an All Ireland medal at Wicklow and was poached after that. So it's definitely doable. It would be a remarkable story for like the totemic figure of the Mead team that came up from intermediate to senior to then go to Australia to then ultimately end up if she makes it to Paris for the Olympics. That's one of the all-time great Irish sports careers. I have to agree with you. She is a generational talent. And I suppose Louise Galvin from Kerry, you know, was in with the Rugby Sevens for a long time before she went back to Kerry this season, last season, I think. Certainly, it's a massive opportunity. And I I think one Vicky will will, will deliver on. Um, I won't be surprised if she makes that final team. Let's talk hurling. You've you've picked 15s that you expect to start or would they be the 15s that you would start? Both. Right. <laughs> so, we'll start with Limerick, right? It's Nicky Quaid, it's Mike Casey, Dan Marcy, Barry Nash, it's Dimmer Burns, it's Will O'Donoghue and Kyle Hayes. So people will notice that there's no Declan Hannan starting there. Uh, Dara Donovan, Keane Lynch, midfield, Groot Hegarty, David Reedy, Tom Marcy, Seamus Flanagan, Aaron Galan and Peter Casey. You don't think Hannan's going to start? No, and if we were listening carefully to Ashing O'Reilly's interview with John Kiley, he may have given away the fourth secret of Fatima. It sounded like Willow Donahue was going to be the better for his performance um, against Galway and will be at six on Sunday. This, this is important, right? This, like, um, because, they, because they won and because they always win and they always find a way, we sometimes underestimate the impact of individuals. Like, Last year, things wouldn't have been as close if the full Keen Lynch uh, uh, experience had been there in the final. But Kilkenny really rattled them and had them going the whole way. Taking Declan Hannan out in those final few moments when Kilkenny get their purple patch, it does matter. I think Kilkenny have a chance here, lads. A big chance. And they're a better team than last year. Certainly, you know... <laughs> I know they lost to Wexford on the 28th of May, which seems a bit mad because Wexford are now looking for a new manager. And that's the madness of hurling. But what Derek Ling has done with them in the last two and a half months, to undo Clare and to do it so well, um, you know, 20 different players on the pitch, never let up. Uh, Interestingly, Seamus Hickey said last week that the physicality that you're looking for with teams is, you know, how close can you get to the action? How close can you get to the player on the ball? And Kilkenny against Clare, it was constantly hooks, blocks, aggression, physicality. That team is completely different to the team that played last year in the final, I would say. And it's completely different to the team that played Limerick in the league And when I was down in Parky Keeve. Like, that game doesn't even exist in the realms of this year's championship. So you have Kilkenny unchanged from the semi-final if everybody is fit and available, essentially? I, that game was practically pitch perfect for Kilkenny there would be no player that you would take out of that 15 uh, in terms of their work rate in terms of what they achieved against Clare um, So why are they a different team? Explain that to us In terms of their distribution of the ball and their use of the ball and their mixing up of short and long play they're not direct anymore they, they have options they have a running game um, and then you have five players coming into the setup in the last 20 minutes Walter Walsh, Keen Kenny, Padraig Walsh, Richie Hogan, um, the, 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 the who is the last, Killian Buckley, who gets the goal against uh, Galway. Those five players to come in in the last 20 minutes against Clare and really settle Clare. By comparison, Clare only brought in three subs and brought on Aaron Shanahan in the 71st minute. I think Derek Ling knows this team 
inside out and is getting every last inch out of them. The evolution from last season, it's it's impossible for us not to compare and contrast the Cody era and the Cody style, but it does feel like Derek Ling has taken that as a foundation and built on it as opposed to ripping up the playbook or, you know, uh, it's not... It, it always feels like it's an implied criticism of Cody that his team didn't do what Derek Ling's team is doing. But maybe you've got to go through that process to get to a point where everybody has buy-in, everybody believes that they can take a bit more out of the ball, everybody understands that they have what they need to do uh, in their in their locker and in their skill set. And then also, lads, you're not going to beat Limerick doing what you did last year. Yeah, I felt they were a little too direct last year. They didn't score enough last year. I know I think they scored 217, but I, that still wasn't enough. From the point of view of, I suppose, the injuries that Kilkenny had in the lead up to this, they've kind of hit form at the right time. You know, Adrian Mullins back, Richie Reid is back. I was really impressed with Hugh Lawler at full back. Owen Murphy is titanic in inside and goal. Derek has hit a sweet spot with this Kilkenny team. And even Richie Hogan sitting in, sitting behind the behind him in the Davin stand the last day like he he annoyed Claire so much in those 10 minutes that he was on they couldn't leave him alone you know that's that's the kind of I suppose um, what we're looking for from Kilkenny is options and a uh, bit of spontaneity and Derek has that in spades with them There's been so much talk about how to mark uh, Aaron Galan Sarah whether you, you get in front of him you, you stay behind you him You can't You can't really yeah. It's probably the David Clifford conversation all over again but will Kilkenny be obsessing over that or are they more more so as Ling just a focus on ourselves type? So I think here and, and with this group uh, Ron O'Gara talks about themes and narratives and you know with La Rochelle he, he talked about focusing on the bigger picture and you know having somebody come in and build a theme for the players to gravitate towards as opposed to just focusing on Leinster the team and I think for this group for Kilkenny it'll be more about stopping that legacy that four in a row chasing Limerick team that great Kilkenny team from 2006 to 2009 did something incredible. And, you know, I suppose no team has has done it since the, the 40s. So they're the standout team. For Ling and for Kilkenny, I think it's not so much about stopping Aaron Gillan. It's about a team for performance and focusing on motivating the players to, to focus on that, that big team performance that stops Limerick from getting a four in a row. The All-Ireland medal will be amazing, but I think for them right now, they have to focus on something else. Well, it's a really good point and I kind of hadn't thought about it that much in the build-up to this but like this Kilkenny team has the potential to become one of the favourite Kilkenny teams of all time. If you stop the four in a row you're like well well all those debates about who'd be in the starting 15 between the Limerick team and the Kilkenny team well now all of a sudden it's like well we've got the we've, sorry did you, did you do a four in a row? No you didn't. This, this, exactly. This stuff matters. And <laughs> look, these are counties that have won. Sorry, in Kilkenny, where they've always won and they've always hoovered up all Ireland like dust. Uh, these, these, the, like that's an inspiration that, like uh, I as a Kildare person, have no access to. Uh, you from Cork definitely have access to it. Um, Not since the nineteen forties, actually. So no, have but, Cork done such a thing. <laughs> but imagine, imagine if like there was a Cork team that comes next year and stops the Limerick five in a row. They would then be considered one of the all-time great Cork teams just for being the spoilers of that party. And that's enough. That's enough yeah. for those Kilkenny lads standing on the shoulders of giants. You can imagine if they stop that on Sunday, and you've Tommy Walsh coming down, JJ Delaney, like the the joy. 
that goes Kilkenny lads would have as a unit. It wouldn't be just the 30 lads, it'd be the 100 lads that came before them. And all of, yeah. all of a sudden you walk into a room with those lads and they have not all Ireland, but you're like, yeah, but we, you know, we're, we're just as good as you now because we stopped those lads being your equals. There's like a, there's a bond and there's like a, a little bit of bragging rights. Full narrative, That's the yeah. theme. That's the narrative. That's the theme. I'm actually, I'm heading to Bally Brown on Friday night, lads, with the uh, future all-star Adam Screeny and Johnny Pilkington. And you know, that that awfully story still lives uh, to this day. So it's like that. It's finding moments, you know, fi- winning individual games um, that, that mean so much to, to individual counties. And that's the thing, right? Because from the Limerick perspective, they do have individuals who could grip the game and win it on their own. And Suckle County needs really to make sure that supply lines are stopped. That That's why the forward effort on the ball that's why everybody being alert when the puck out is happening or when the ball is going wide and trickling wide there's not like a we've got like a split second here to relax because all of a sudden Quaid has the ball and it's out to Hegarty and it's in the back of the net and you're like oh, we switched off for a split second and it's game over yeah I, I think from that point of view that that's why I've put Garrod Hegarty back at 10 I think he needs to be the out ball for Quaid and that he needs to be very sharp on that um, from Kilkenny's point of view, Billy Ryan, they suggested last week, didn't go as well against Clare as he would have liked, but his work rate was in- incredible, you know, and, and that's the kind of work rate that you're going to need to stop the likes of Barry Nash coming out with the ball, the likes of Mike Casey coming out with the ball. You saw what Kilkenny were able to do to Clare because they had the spare man with Richie Reid being the spare man in that first half and how they were able to do really good restarts and find space and pick out pockets. There's going to be no spare man the next day. It's going to be man on man. And every player is going to be touch tight, as physical as they can. It's going to be a rip-roaring contest. How how important is it, Sarah, that um, Kilkenny don't rush into decision-making? Because, you know, after the, the final last year, I think Limerick get the first goal in two points. Hegarty obviously gets the goal and ends up being unbelievable throughout. Um, but but Shefflin in, in that semi-final certainly seemed to panic when Limerick got a couple of scores. He changed from the two up in the, in, in the inside forward line and reverted back to one. And some people felt that was maybe the turning of, of that semi-final. So sometimes, I guess, when you're playing Limerick, you just can't panic when things are going against you. Yeah, I think Kilkenny having to go two behind against Clare and the momentum shifting to Clare in that semi-final is the perfect example of them not panicking mm. or them being two points down against Galway in the Leinster final and not panicking. They're just workhorses. It's next ball, next ball, next ball. They've been in so many situations this season where they could have lost and should have lost and they haven't. Uh, they're primed for this. And there's no real fear factor. Like Derek Ling kind of referenced that this week in, in some of his uh, media bits. Like Limerick this year, I guess, before the semi-final, I don't think they'd won a game by more than two points. So the fear factor that was there maybe two, three years ago isn't quite at the same level. I'd agree. I, I think that this Limerick team, because of the exposure that the, kind of they had in that first 25 minutes against Galway, it's probably chipped another bit of, uh, I suppose, enamel off of the off of the chariot that was was so strong, you know. There, there's so much about Limerick to love, but we've seen weaknesses right through this championship. Um, Tipperary caused them hassle, Cork caused them hassle, Clare caused them hassle, much more hassle than we've seen in previous seasons. So if I was Kilkenny right now, as Paul Murphy said in the hurling pod, you know, you're going up there thinking, I can win this. And Kilkenny are going up there thinking, yeah, we have a chance. We have a massive chance here. The opposite side of that, of course, is that Limerick have been battle-hardened the whole way through in a way that maybe in previous years they haven't. And so they're going to feel pretty confident about their ability to think their way through whatever difficulties they have in the match. 
and they haven't so far been overawed by any of the history they've been creating. In many ways, it's actually inspired them. So, um, like, I, I know we're all really keen to talk ourselves into thinking how close this is going to be, but there is also a possibility that we're we're waiting for that signature performance from Limerick uh, this year, and it might also be coming. Saving the best to last, perhaps. Um, it would be a fitting end for for that group if they do manage to do the four in a row. They do deserve to do the four in a row in terms of what they've given to the game over the last four years and how they've revolutionised it. But isn't that the whole thing with Kilkenny? They spoil all the parties. So from Limerick's point of view, you know, they will be process driven. I think they'll have learned a lot from the Galway game. I've picked Keane Lynch at midfield because I think he will be key there. Um, he was playing very deep in the first half. And when I say very deep, he was very close to the Galway goal in that first half against them. Um, I think he needs to be closer to the Limerick goal uh, to support Will O'Donoghue if Will O'Donoghue's playing at six. And he did that so well in the second half. I think that's the reason why uh, Galway were beaten. The, the Kenny strike the depth. I'm just looking at the bench that they, uh, the lads t- they took off the bench in last year's final against Limerick. So Fogarty, Walter Walsh, uh, David Blanchfield, Richie Hogan, Alan Murphy. Uh, Murphy in injury time come off the bench. But like, even in that semi-final, like the strength and depth they have now compared to then, even like again, you have Welsh and Hogan, um, Killian Buckley's there, Billy Drennan is there. Like so, the options that the Derek Ling has seem to be more improved than last year, even. Yeah, well, look, Connor Fogarty's you know playing playing midfield again mm. this year, revitalised, and you know what what a what an interception um, against Clare early on when uh, block, it, it looked yeah. like there was a massive goal on. Um, but David Blanchfield's gone to five, you know, Paddy Deegan at seven. Um, the five subs he brought on the last day I was saying to you, Patrick Walsh scored a point, uh, Keane Kenny scored a point, uh, Killian Buckley comes on, Walter Walsh comes on, Richie Hogan gets two frees down in the corner. Like those five players in the space of the 44th minute to the, I think, 70, the 70th minute, that was a crucial, crucial spell where Clare were very much in the ascendancy and those five players added massively to Kilkenny. So having those to come in and then you've got Tom Phelan scored a point, Billy Ryan had a point, um, Hugh Lawler gets a point from full back. This Kilkenny team knows each other so, so well. And then Captain Fantastic in the corner, Owen Cody, 1-5. Uh, I think this game is primed to be a spectacle. Now, there's, there's two, right, one last bit, right? If Kilkenny win this, they're a team of destiny with the last minute goal in the Leinster final and the all-time greatest save ever in the semi-final but if they lose we'll be like ah it was a kind of a fluky way for them to get through here right <laughs> <laughs> no no I don't I don't agree with that I've been watching both teams since February this is a long beat you know this is like seven months of of hurling and I'm going to be gutted that this day next week hurling will be dust inter-county hurling will be dust the club season will be getting up and ready but these two teams there's no surprise that they are where they are right now Um Kilkenny have learned so much throughout the season and some of the performances this season were, you know, hand over your eyes stuff. And I was very, very critical of them during the league. But that semi-final performance is the best team's peak last, lads. Is Hurler of the Year, to coin a phrase that's been used in the last week or two, a foregone conclusion at this stage, Sarah, with Galan? Or is... (laughs) is, uh, Like like if Cody... If Kilkenny win and Cody plays well, like could that change or has it already been decided, I guess? It won't be decided until after Sunday. Yeah. Those 70 minutes. And I don't think Galan would take the hurler of the year if Kilkenny won it. Uh, that's the type of player that he is. 
I think he will need to have a pitch perfect performance to to deserve that. And uh, no better men than Owen Cody or TJ Reid to to steal the limelight there. Uh, so you're predicting what exactly? <laughs> Limerick but Kilkenny have a big chance <laughs> Love that fence sir come on I do believe that's uh, riding with the hair Okay I'm going with Limerick okay I'm going with Limerick I'm going with Limerick I'm going with Limerick Right Yeah I'm, Okay. Yeah done And come here sorry Limerick. Uh, what, what numbers on the jersey we'll ask Sue Ronan why it's not a, a, a lower number if you want us to a little bit later on Here this is the squad 18 18 in the squad I got in by the skin of my teeth but I was from Cork I was so far away Yeah <laughs> Yeah, Sue will be like, who? Uh, yeah. Colum, Colum's, uh, uh, oh, yeah, Colum's nodding his head there. <laughs> What's I, that? What does that mean? Oh, he agrees. He's from Cork. It's like, it's the, it, it was Roy Keane. Couldn't get in an Ireland team until he came up to Dublin. <laughs> Fairview Park. They, they, went, they went as far as Fairview Park to watch him and he was really good in a 3-0 defeat when he was underage and that was the only time he got selected for Ireland. I'll give, I'll give Sue credit. There was, I was playing in, um, in Bishopstown and there was a lad named Darren Kelleher was down to watch a couple of games and then you get the nod. But then you got the nod by post. I got, an, I got a letter to be told I was getting an invitation oh, to lovely. Dublin. But that is class. Like you, I, yeah. I presume you still got the letter. Somebody, you like the... And, uh, yeah, all what? of the letters. Uh, there, was, there was three or four of them over that season where you'd be literally waiting for the postman to be told you got selected. So... It's a super memory to have, but uh, she did break my heart after that. So, oh, go on, sure, she's coming on in ten minutes. <laughs> sure, she dropped me for the two thousand and three campaign. So there you go. You also get a letter to be told you're not selected. Oh, right, that's not great. You're like, oh, yeah, the letter with the postmark from the FBI. What? <laughs> yeah. There you go, lads. That was that was two thousand and two. So the end yeah. of the end of your Wham scrapbook is uh, <laughs> is, is a sad one with a sad smiley face. It is, but I I have a huge respect for Sue still. I think she's class. So Good there stuff. you go. Thanks a million. Enjoy the game, Sarah. Thanks, lads. Cheers, Bye. Sarah Donovan. There uh, giving us her preview for the weekend. Colin didn't even see my reference to the Wham documentary there, and straight over his head. Yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh no, now he's interested. It. Now he's paying attention. Have you seen it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I need to watch it. <laughs> Needless to say, yeah. I just I just referenced it there, Colin, but you weren't paying attention. John Duggan is with us. Oh, oh, oh sorry, virtual insanity. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you have entered Power Drive. Oh wow! Jaron Shane, good morning. How are you? Morning, John. Good yourselves. Flying it. So the Open begins tomorrow, 6.35 at Hoylake. And I was checking, maybe if you're able to glide across the sea, it's the same distances between here and Cork as it is to get to the Wirral. Is it? And right. Royal Liverpool Golf oh. Club in Hoylake. Which is where Rory McIlroy won his last major in 2014, nine years ago. And it's coming into this, bidding for his fifth ever title. And what do we have here? 18 under par total from Tiger Woods in 2006 at a burnt Hoylake. One driver he used all week. Then in 2014, McIlroy got 17 under par. They made the course harder. So they've taken four shots back. They made a par 71 from 72. They've lengthened some of the holes. They've created a new hole, which is a tricky par 3 17th hole. And there are six out-of-bounds areas on 14 driving holes. So placement and strategy is key this week, lads. The field, 156, including six Irish players. Rory McIlroy, Shane Lowry, Seamus Power, Darren Clark, Podrick Harrington, and the late-town amateur Alex Maguire. And the forecast, breezy, perhaps better for late 
early starter to late afternoon tomorrow early Friday morning but the forecast is for rain on Saturday so good even itself out you have to be able to play in the wind uh, not going to be a gale I think this week but perhaps a bit tricky we have the likes of Cameron Smith the defending champion and Liv Defector who won the Live London event recently the world number one Scotty Scheffler John Ram the Masters champion Patrick Hantley, Victor Hovland, Xander Schauffler, Max Homa, Matt Fitzpatrick, Wyndham Clark, the US Open champion, just to name a few, Jordan Spieth, Brooks Kepka won the PGA as we know. Ricky Fowler yeah. in the winner's enclosure. That's right. Tyrrell Hatton, Colin Marikawa won this a couple of years ago as well. Tommy Fleetwood, the long-haired lover from Liverpool. And uh, Dustin Johnson, who's the, the, the live um, secret agent. So just in terms of the Irish lads, before we get into the picks... Uh, I'm not going to talk about Shane Lowry yet, which is probably an indicator, but Rory, uh, we're talking about Rory. Couldn't be better placed, really, could he? Won the Scottish Open last week with a clutch finish. Got the last two birdies to beat Robert McIntyre. Uh, putted that one into the hole in 18 and, and comes in with a win. Has avoided the media this week. Uh, won at Hoylake, as we know, on, in soft enough conditions nine years ago. Was second at the US Open. Just couldn't get the putts to drop. And what's there not a lot, lot to like? Twenty four PJ Tour wins. What are the odds? What what is uh, eight to one for Rory? And who's who's favourite? Is he favourite? Yes, with Scheffler. Right. It's a bit like the Grand National, both at the top there, about eight to one. And yeah. So third of St Andrews last year, six top five finishes at the open. Uh low shot into eighteen last week was indicative of the fact that he is able to do not just the moon shots, but the low shots as well. I thought the eighteenth last week was one of the highlights of his career because he steps off the driver twice and he steps off the approach shot and he steps off the putt because of the wind is howling and all around him everybody is losing their minds like all his playing partners it's um, Fleetwood and uh, I've forgotten now um, but they're having complete meltdowns and it's taken ages for him to get yeah, each Tom shot Kim, yeah, yeah. and I'm like this is a, I, I thought it was amazing to be able to, with everything that has gone on, you know, and it's been for him quite a while since uh, since he's had putts drop. Yes, like, like didn't, at the US didn't Open. hold a putt at the US Open. Do you know, so I don't know. I just thought it was like, uh, yeah, it was big. I, I I would agree with you. And they said afterwards, you know, it's big for next week, but it's also big for the rest of the season. It does feel like it's big for the rest of the season. Unfortunately, there's not enough left. Come on, no, there's not. Uh, Seamus Power has had a hip injury, but recovered from that. Missed the cut at St Andrews last year a tight 13th of the John Deere Classic on his penultimate start. We know he can play links golf, obviously from his experience around the country. One in windy conditions in Bermuda back in October. Patrick Harrington might have a decent round or two. Be lovely to see him up there in the leaderboard as he was in Scotland for the first two rounds last week. Can he be a challenger, John? Not a hope. Not a hope? Not a hope. He thinks he, obviously he thinks he can be, but um, like if he can play like he did in the first two rounds last weekend, why, why can't he keep that going he can, for four? Can't do it for four rounds. His last uh, best finish at the Open was tied twi- 20th at St Andrews back in 2015. Mm. Um, two decent rounds in Scotland last week. Like, like six top tens in the Champions Tour means he's playing very well. Um, I just think at this level, very difficult to see it. And also missed the cut here back in 2014. Darren Clark, once again, not playing as well as Harrington, but likely defend the Senior Open more than make the cut here. And Alex McGuire, as I said, Florida Athletic University, 22 years of age, uh, won the St Andrews Lynx Trophy and reached the quarterfinals of the Amateur Championship to book a spot. Um, I was away when the Women's US Open was on, but I've got to tell you that the level of excitement in our family WhatsApp group about Anya Donegan was off the charts, leading the US Open in Pebble Beach, having arrived and had her driver broken by United Airlines on the way and then tweeting out about it. And then to be leading the US Open during the first round 
uh, at 400 par uh, was absolutely incredible. So, big shout out. breath of fresh air. And she's from the banner. She, and there you go. Yeah. Um, Ennis, isn't it? Yes. Her, uh, like the, her interview, her interview her walk style and talk is, is hilarious. Incredible. She's just so laid back. Charismatic. Yeah. So Do well yeah. at Louisiana State. Yeah, amazing, amazing. The um, the they were named all all Louisiana. I don't know if there are there there must be must be steep enough competition at that level. And she still has another couple of years left of eligibility, and is going to be playing in Drumoland at the Women's Irish Open. So, um, yeah, we're keeping an eye. Definitely bodes well as well because it's not just Leona, and there's there's other players coming through, which is fantastic to see. Okay, the picks this week. Uh, obviously, if you're going to get involved, this is a virtual. Uh, don't do it uh, for more than a year each way. But um, I'm going all strategies and you know my own virtual virtual cash and trying to keep a tally where I am through the year. So going to pick five golfers. Uh, Shane Larry's the headline pick to win a second Open Championship. Thirty three to one is a big price. I feel uh, you can get that with Betway twenty each way virtually. We know we can do it. Won a Port Rush. Uh, 64 and 65 rounds in Scotland last week where he's tied 12th. Top 20 finishes in all three majors this year. Uh, he got the wrong side of the draw at Hoy Lake in 2014. One of only a couple of players to do that but still finished in the top 10. Uh, that is a good tiding. He's shown when he likes a course he can repeat. Wentworth is an example of that. Windy conditions is something that a field golfer like Shane Lowry who's hit the ball really, really well this year um, can, can suit him. I just think the putts need to drop but uh, why not? I think for Shane Lowry, to, uh, thirty-three to one to finish in the top twelve, I think is is a decent is a decent headline pick this week for Shane Lowry. Obviously, I'm going to pick Patrick Cantlay, much to the rage of the world. Um, but there you go. Uh, you got to stick to your guns and believe yourself because you I can't be- quit you, man. If you, if, if, no, if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else is going to. Twenty-two to one for fifteen each way. Look, look just look from a mathematical point of view. Eight top tens and 17 starts in the PGA Tour, almost half the time. So if that's the case, we're talking about somebody that's got a 47% chance of a top 10 at nearly 5 to 2 on the each way. That is profit ultimately, um, including the losing win wager on the each way. Fourth in the world, eighth in the betting. There's a discrepancy there uh, because he's just not a flashy guy. Uh, people say he doesn't perform in majors. Tied eighth last year on only his fourth open start at St Andrews. Top 15 finishes in all three majors this year. A strategic player, he's got Tigers caddy Joel Acava on the back now. First in total driving this season. That is the mixture of distance and accuracy and you need to drive the ball straight at Hoylake. I think Patrick Cantlay, who plays well in the wind, is geared for a really big finish. I'd love to see Larry and Cantlay go at it because they really didn't get on at the Ryder Cup uh, a couple of years ago at Whistling Straits. It could be a repeat of the battle. So they're the two main ones. The three um, outsiders are all from down under, right? After Cameron Smith won last year, Minwoo Lee is sixty to one for five each way. Twenty-four years of age, won the Scottish Open on links a couple of years ago. Tied fifth of the U.S. Open last month. Has got the stinger shot that Tiger Woods used to use. Can hit it really, really low. Was in the final group of the players. Has got a real attitude, really good attitude. His sister won a major, Minji Lee. And I think Minwoo Lee is going to be a star. Five each way, sixties. Uh, Ryan Fox, five each way, ninety to one. Ryan Fox, remember the Grand Fox, the rugby player for the All Blacks in the 87 World Cup? That's his son. We know he likes Lynx golf, second to Baddy Liffin at the Irish Open, top five at Port Stewart, tied 12th last week at the Scottish Open. I was second behind Rory in the race to Dubai last year. And I think Ryan Fox has definitely got an each way chance and, and the kind of conditions he likes. And the last one is the guy who has got guts, Lucas Herbert, former Irish Open winner, has won four times around the world. He's only 27. He's got a brilliant short game, but he's got self belief. He's 150 to 1. Uh, he was the top 15 in St Andrews last year. He played well on his penultimate start. Uh, he's got creative. 
uh, juice in him. He's got a good short game and he played well in Bermuda where he won there in, in windy conditions um, a couple of seasons ago. So Lucas Herbert, 150 to 1. Ryan Fox, 90 to 1. Lemin Lee, 60 to 1. All these five each way bets. Patrick Cantlay, 22 to 1 for 15 each way. Shane Lowry, 33 to 1 for 20 each way. I'm pretty confident we'll make a profit this week on virtual insanity. Obviously, don't uh, go heavy if you're, if you're at home. Just do a euro each way. But it starts 6.35 tomorrow. And we can't wait for four great days of golf. The big news is John Duggan is off the Roy McIlroy major train. That's it. Not tipping him. Not this week. But, but. but more than anybody else in the in Ireland, I hope he wins this and week. Also, not on the not, not off the Cantlay train. Like he is so so boring to watch, Patrick Cantlay. But yet he could still win. Nothing more anyway. Profit chain. No, that's it. It's true. That's your uh, virtual insanity. All right, lads. Open special edition. You have entered Power Drive. Oh, wow! It's obviously a golden period for Irish golf. It's also a bit of a golden period for Irish athletics. I'm delighted to say Carl Denny is with us. Carl, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? You've been on this beat a long time, but it's never been as vibrant and as interesting from an Irish perspective, I suspect. Yeah, been on it about 10 years now, and we certainly never had uh, athletes with the trajectory that Rashida Adelecki currently has. I mean, she is probably, if you're talking about the world's best female 400-meter runner, she's probably number two or three at the moment, and a month out for a wor- from a world championships and 12 months out from an Olympics. That's a, a very exciting place to be for Irish athletics. So she made her professional debut last night, um, and we can get into the semantics of the language, in a 200 meters event in Hungary. Yeah, she ran uh, 200, her first pro race since going pro and signing with Nike um, the other day. And she ran 22.36, which is her second fastest time ever. Her national record is 22.34, which she ran with a, a good tailwind back in Florida in April. And this was very impressive debut um, to run 200 metres in that time. It really, to me, it's impressive because she's gone from Texas to Hungary. I think that's seven time zones. She's gone across the world. Often athletes will have, be a little jet lagged and run a little flat and the American based athletes on their first race in Europe. Um, and she's done it right between two peaks. So her peak was timed for the NCAA championships, which were five and a half weeks ago. And she's obviously building up now towards the second peak, which is the world champs in a little over four weeks time. And she'll have taken a break after the NCAA Championships and just be back training now and building up the fitness again for those world champs. So to come out and start like that is highly impressive. And really, it was a rust buster to probably get her ready for the Monaco Diamond League on Friday night, where she'll be taking on the world's best over 400 metres. So the the 400 is definitely the, the career trajectory. But as a 400 metre runner, you can also run these 200s, which is useful for for Diamond League and for uh, championships if if it so works out that you want a rust buster at a major championship you can do that I suspect is that right? Yeah absolutely yeah she can always run these 200s to get ready and she is a European under 20 champion at 200 and was I suppose a 200 metre specialist until about little over a year ago I suppose and so yeah she can keep doing these but I think the double at the world championships while she is qualified now for the world championships over 200 metres 99% she won't run the 200 metres at Worlds because the mor- the final or the heats of the 200 metres are the are the morning of the final of the 400 metres. Right. Like seven or eight hours between them. So assuming she makes the 400 metre final, she won't waste her energy that morning by running the 200. But it's probably she'll probably be entered though in case anything goes wrong in the semi-final or false start or anything like that. 
Sydney McLaughlin Lavrone is, is a name that I think Dervil O'Rourke brought up on the show with us before. She obviously gets to test herself on, in Monaco on Friday against her. She's gone from hurdles to flat. Um, like, will that kind of show us where she's at in comparison to her? I guess she's the one to beat. Absolutely, yeah. Sydney is, you know, the queen of 400 metre hurdles. She's broken every record and won every medal there is to win in in that sphere. Um, and since then, she's looking for a new challenge, and that challenge is breaking what most people consider the unbreakable record of Marita Koch in the 400 metres. That's 47.60. Sydney hasn't got close to that, um, which speaks volumes about the legitimacy of that record. Um, but that's from that's. She's run 48.74 to win the US title last month or this month, Sydney. So that's about a half a second clear of Rashida, Rashida's best time on season's best. So Rashida is definitely going to be up against it on Friday night. I wouldn't expect her to, you know, challenge her personal best to 49.20. But if she could run anything like in the mid 49 seconds, that would set her up perfectly. And I think really it's a good test and benchmark a month out for the World Championships about what she's going to be up against. Because it's not just Sydney. You've got Natalia Kazmarek in there, a very good Polish athlete who ran a national record of 49.48 last weekend in Poland. So just racing athletes like that. And I think even just stripping away the the respect that I suppose Rashida will probably have, even though she won't fear them. And just to get on the track beside them would be a great kind of acid test before she takes them on again at the World Championships. We were talking in the aftermath of the NCAA victory about the potential for going pro and what it actually means. Now that it's happened, does all of this make sense to you in terms of the the planning and, and how it's all going to work? Presumably Nike came in and were like, this is available to you now. Uh, would you like to take it and the coaching situation is sorted out and and so what can you tell us about that kind of mechanics of that and and what it means for where she is at the moment yeah well I'm not actually 100% on what her plans are but I would be 99% sure that Rashida will stay based in Texas at least until the Paris Olympics under the guidance of Edric Floriel because he's you know he, he he he's guided her so well over the last two and a half years and her trajectory just keeps going upwards and I know Rashida is very focused on education as well and a lot of people I saw in the comments sections online were like oh why is she turning professional she needs to finish her education but that those aren't mutually exclusive normally if you do turn professional and you want to finish your education that would be built into your professional contract that Nike would pay the tuition for the rest of her education and maybe it'll be next year maybe it'll be five years from now but you know she would have the freedom and flexibility to finish her classes, I suppose, at Texas. I think she's only one year left. But in terms of her setup, yeah, I'd expect her to be based at Texas. You know, Edric has coached many athletes. He did it when he was college coach in Kentucky. He actually coached Sydney McLaughlin of Roney before many years ago. So he'll know how to coach against her, I suppose. Um, he did have a group of pros. In recent years, he wasn't coaching any professional athletes in Texas, but he has said he would commit to doing it again for Rashida and, of course, the NCAA 100-meter champion, Julian Alfred. So it will change a little bit the the setup because as a professional athlete, you're not supposed to train with the college team anymore. So it could become more of a lonely existence. And um, there are ways around that. If I think if they put you in as a volunteer coach on paper, I think you might be able to continue training with the team. Um, but yeah, so it might just be a little bit set up and might be a little bit lonelier for Rashida next year. But ultimately, I think 95% of her setup will remain exactly the same. Is there a pathway there in terms of the timing, Cahill? Like, I guess the like turning pro in the third year of a of a Olympic cycle does that does that make sense in in your book? Like, I guess she has the next twelve months to structure as she sees as she sees fit. 
I think it absolutely does. I mean, people were saying, I know even someone as respected as Eamon Coughlin I saw there and one of the off the ball clips saying, you know, from a few months back that he thought she should stay in college for another couple of years. But I disagree, I suppose, primarily on a financial level because Rashida will never get a bigger offer than she's getting right now. You know, in terms of shoe contracts, they don't really reward what you're doing at the moment or what you've done in the past year. They, It's all a bet. It's a gamble and it's a gamble on potential. And the, the time to get the biggest offer by far is when you're on a steep upward trajectory. So if Rashida stayed in college another year and she was running 49-2 and winning NCAAs a year down the road, her offer would actually be way down on what it is now. Because her trajectory is so steeply curving upwards, they're betting that she might be the next Sydney McLaughlin Lavroni. And that's why big, big offers will have been put on the table in front of Rashida by multiple brands over the last few weeks. And yeah, it's no surprise to see she's gone with Nike because, you know, they they sponsor the University of Texas and there is a link there with her college coach. So um yes exciting times ahead and i think this is really the perfect time you know she's done it all and won it all now in the ncaa so it's time to take her talents to the diamond league what kind of earning potential does somebody like rashida adelecki now have like when we were talking about big offers from the shoe companies what what kind of offers would they be they would be i i was at the oslo diamond league recently and just asked a couple of agents this and one of the us-based agents who's Good, good experience working with NCAA champions. He he said it's hard to know because with an Irish athlete that they wouldn't really reward your being Irish because basically the size of the market, you know, yeah, you'll be on billboards, yeah, you'll be on newspapers, but Nike might look at it and say, well, that's a country of 5 million people, you know, whereas like if you're that in the US and you're in a country of 300 million, it's worth so much more to them. So that would actually make her contract smaller than if she was an American running the same times. But the agent I spoke to estimated that a, a contract of between two hundred and four hundred thousand dollars a year would be being put on the table in front of Rashida in recent weeks. That's brilliant. And then now all of a sudden, of course, she's she's liable to win. She's capable of winning the prize money and accepting the prize money in the Diamond League. Um, is there an American equivalent to the Diamond League that we would have grown up with in Europe? What, what do professional runners in America? What are the? How do they earn their money in in races? basically just come to Europe. Right. Um, yeah, the, the pro scene in US is not great. There are a couple of Continental Tour gold meets, which is what the meet last night was in Hungary. Um, but that's one tier down from Diamond League. So the prize money is a little bit lower. The fields are a little bit less deep. And yeah, Diamond Leagues are up the top and there's only, is it the New York, I think is the only Diamond Or There's two Diamond Leagues. There's one in Oregon and um Oh, yeah, I think, no, sorry, there is only one Diamond League in, in the US and that's in Oregon at the in, in September every year. So most of the kind of professional circuit is based in Europe. So I think what we'd see from Rashida as we look towards the Paris Olympics will be that she'll probably run a few early season races like most of the Americans would do in April and May to just tune up a bit and then get over to Europe for a few races through June and July. And then obviously the Paris Olympics will be end of July next year. You used the word trajectory there earlier, Cahill. Like, and we spoke with Vicky Wall's unbelievable Irish sporting story earlier in the show. Like, when you think about Rashida, like to go from presentation college in, in Terenure and all of the sports that she tried as a as a kid and a teenager. I think basketball and athletics were the last two left on the on the decision making list, and then to even go from the disappointment of Tokyo missing out on the on the team there to this a shoe deal with Nike. Like, this is this is one of the great Irish sporting stories. It really is, yeah. I mean, you would have seen it from many years coming, but there's so many athletes who've been as good as Rashida at the age of, or similar to Rashida in terms of exciting talent at the age of 14, 15, 16, who just fizzle out, burn out or fade away. 
But I think with Rashida, you have to credit, you know, it, it's, it, it's, I, th- I think there's three things with Anatoly that makes them get to this level. It's their own discipline and drive. And she has that. It's having good parents around you who steer you correctly and are actually on board with what you're trying to do. And Rashida has that. And it's having a good coach as well. And Rashida has had that, you know, in terms of Johnny Fox, her juvenile coach, handed it over to Daniel Kilgallen. And Daniel's project for two or three years before she went to Texas was to just get her ready, her strong enough and mechanically sound enough to withstand what was coming at her in the NCAA. And obviously, Edric Floriel, a truly world-class coach, has just built on all that and brought her to the level she's at. And so I think, yeah, all those three things, you know, combine to make Rashida what she is. Uh, not to labour the point on the money, right, but just because <laughs> we, we, we are always fascinated by the football contracts and that kind of is. Um, but in terms of Diamond League prize money, then, like, what's the difference... Uh, what is available to you if you perform well in the Diamond League over a 12-month period? It's pretty poor relative to other sports. You know, like you're talking about golf there a while ago and I'm sure the golfers would laugh. You know, if you finished 50th on the PGA Tour, you probably get more than you do for winning the Diamond League. But I think it's $10,000 for winning the Diamond League, maybe $8,000 for second. And then like Continental Tour, like the meet last night, I think might be four or five thousand dollars maybe for a win three or four thousand for second but at the diamond league final then i think you can, you can win like 40 or fifty thousand for first that would be in oregon in september so i'm sure rashida will be going there and then world championships there's prize money available as well i think that's maybe sixty thousand dollars for right. and first that, and maybe forty thousand for silver something like that that's why you you need to be a business person as well as actually being an athlete it's a, a bit like the jockeys where you need to manage your career incredibly well to maximise your earning potential to give you the freedom to be able to train in the blocks that you you want to and and that's why any of these contracts that she has with any of her sponsors are going to be incredibly important in the coming years. Exactly, because at the level you get to, I know some Irish athletes once they break through to international level can can look at an agent and go like, they're going to take 15% 15% is pretty standard. Sometimes bigger the contract, sometimes you can negotiate it down a bit. Like I'm sure Usain Bolt or someone when he was on 10 million a year from Puma might have been on 7 or 8% to his agent or something like that. But normally it's 15%. And a lot of athletes, when they get their first contract, might look at that and go like, what do you actually do to take 15% of my my earnings, you know, but I think the more I've been around the sport, the more you do see the value of an agent is absolutely massive because they're the ones who are negotiating to get you into a meet. Um, they're the ones who are getting you on a good lane in a lot of those diamond leagues. Um, and they're the ones, you know, who are sitting down with the brands. And if one brand isn't giving you your value, they have decades of experience to go, well, I know what this other brand is going to give you, you know. So ultimately, an agent is an absolutely key element of it. I haven't actually heard yet who Rashida's agent is, but I won't speculate. I've heard a couple of different people mentioned, but um, we'll find out. She's doing a, a round of interviews back in Ireland on Monday, so I'm sure we'll we'll find out more about her path forward then. The age profile, I guess, points to how this makes sense because like, she's 20 years of age, and, and as different athletes have pointed out, uh, ex-athletes between the age of 20, 23, 24, Things can go wrong. I think Seb Coe said you're only ever a hamstring away from oblivion. So to do it now is probably the best time. Absolutely, yeah. This is the time to go pro and enter this world. And, you know, she's going to be, if she stays healthy, she's going to be out there on the pro scene for the next decade. She's still only 20, we have to remind ourselves. Um, And, you know, the likes of Shawnee Miller-Weibo, who she's a very similar athlete to Shawnee Miller-Weibo, the two-time Olympic champion of 400, because she is that kind of 200, 400 athlete. You know, she's just out on maternity leave at the moment and making her way back she won't be back in time for the world championships but she'll definitely be back in time for the paris olympics and you know there's no reason this won't be the first of like three or four olympics that rashida can go to 
So I think this is the time to get out there, get the experience under your belt. And also, you know, Rashida ran about 50 races last year between relays. And now the best one of all was the European final. It was the 50th race, I think, or 49th race of the year. But I think, you know, ideally, if you're sitting down and planning a season and planning your peak, you, I don't think any athlete would race that much. And the fact she won't have the NCAA burden and I suppose it's been a blessing really because she's run well off it but I suppose just exhausting you and all the travel that's involved in that the fact she'll be able to spend her energy a bit more wisely and carefully next year I think can only be a benefit to her on the path to Paris. We we basically used all our available time talking about Rashida because it's such a big story at the moment but we shouldn't um, let the moment pass without mentioning Sophie O'Sullivan and the 1-2 with Sarah Healy at the Euro under 23s. How good could Sophie O'Sullivan be? Very good. I mean she's bundles of talent and I'd say the same with Sarah Healy you know they're both 22 years old and it was astonishing and they both had different paths but similar trajectories because they both struggled a bit coming out of under 20 level just a rocky year or two and they're both back flying now they found that kind of consistency of training and yeah Sophie has the you know the she's built up the endurance base but she has the wheels of her mum Sonia that we all saw coming home there in the last 100 metres the weekend and Sarah Healy it's great to see her back running so well she's moved into a properly professional setup now over training in England with Trevor Painter who coaches the Olympic silver medalist Keely Hodgkinson so very exciting things for them ahead and we also had I suppose just to drop in a quick mention Brian Fay and Andrew Coskrin of the Dublin Track Club training group with Phelan Kelly absolutely smashing the Irish records there at the weekend, both taking two seconds off the 5, 5k and the 1500 metre record. So very exciting times. And then when you look to junior level, Nick Griggs with an your, our, uh, Irish under 20 record in foul conditions at the Morton Games as well. So I think the middle distance is definitely making a huge resurgence for Ireland and we'll see a lot more Irish athletes lining up in European and maybe even world or Olympic finals. But I think, yeah, in terms of medals, I think Rashida is the one to look to for the next couple of years. Carl, great stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. I called down here there with uh, really interesting insights into the uh, trajectory of Rashida Adelecki and obviously we'll keep a very close eye on Sophie O'Sullivan. It's going to be a bit of a burden for her uh, being her mum's daughter but also kind of inspiring for the rest of the country as well. The pressure. And you saw the kick in that race against Sarah Healy. Like, I mean, so familiar. Uh, and Sarah Healy was gutted because she was the number one seed and probably fancied herself to beat Sophie O'Sullivan but I think she said afterwards, you know, there's no one she'd rather lose to obviously than other Irish athlete than Sophie. So, one, two, unbelievable. Um, right, the hurling pod is at the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin and it is tomorrow. We're going to be joined on stage by co-hosts James Kell and Paul Murphy as well as special guests Joe Canning, Kieran Carey and Tommy Walsh. If you've any interest in sport or life, this is going to be an all-time great show. It's in the BGE. It's on tomorrow evening. It's an exclusive off-air event. You have to be there. There are limited tickets left this morning on offtheball.com forward slash events. It's all for a great cause. All the ticket proceeds are going to the Dylan Quirk Foundation and Focus Ireland. Get your tickets now. Help support two brilliant causes. Borgosh Energy, proud sponsors of the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championships. Some highlights for you on the Off The Wall podcast network today. The latest hurling pod before the live show. Colin O'Rourke speaking with Joe last night about the Talton Cup and Sean Boylan and the lunchtime wrap for you available as well. After the break, Sue Ronan responds to Sarah Donovan's heartbreak. First, Ashley O'Reilly speaking with John Kiley yesterday ahead of the All-Ireland final. Back after these. And what's it like for you, John? Do you enjoy all this? I know you're asked in there and you said that I don't enjoy it, you know, going out to the games. It's not about that, but do you enjoy this success, this journey you're on? It's pretty special. Well, I enjoy my time with the lads, you know. I love coming to training. I've never, 
ever felt like I didn't want to get in the car and go to training. Yeah. I love getting in the car and going to training. I love every minute in this stadium and out in Raquel where we do our training. We have great fun. We have had great laughs and times, you know, uh, going and coming from matches as well as another really enjoyable piece of it. Match day is work day. You know, you're, you're, you're on the clock and that's it. Like, you know, yeah. and from the minute you leave home, you want to be the best that you can be because you certainly don't want to leave these guys down, you know, and make a poor decision. You know, that's probably the one thing that you're really, really conscious of you know, that you are the decision maker and you better make sure you get the decisions right so yeah that's that's the part for me to, to look after that's where I have to step up and make sure that I'm as best, that the best that I can be for them but um, yeah listen we've had a really really enjoyable time we, we continue to do that and I hope we'll, we'll continue long into the future to have it as well Yeah you have two weeks now do you feel calm do you feel pressure can you sleep what is it like for you? It's busy, yeah. Today is certainly a very, very busy day. There's a lot going on. We've a lot more to do this evening, but you know that's part and parcel of it as well. Uh, we want to try and get ahead of ourselves if we can, and try and get a lot of the, the little bits and pieces that come with this occasion. You know, sorted early doors and get them done so we can go and concentrate on what's really important: our training, our preparations, making sure that we are we're absolutely ready for the game when it comes next Sunday week. OTB AM, the Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball. 16 minutes past nine this morning. We are 24, 27 hours out from the Republic of Ireland against Australia in the World Cup. And I'm delighted to say Sue Ronan is with us this morning. Sue, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, Ger. Morning, Shane. How are things? Yeah, good. We're all getting excited. Um, yeah, one day out now. It's, it's on top of us all set. Before we get into it, uh, you broke poor Sarah Donovan's heart a long time ago. No, <laughs> <laughs> so I believe. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of other girls I broke hearts of too, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that could be the same Sarah Donovan I brought back in later on with the under 16s as a video analyst. So maybe I made up to it. Maybe I made it up to her if it is. But, she seems, uh, seems happy enough anyway at this stage. Uh, well, you also you get to make their lives by. There you go. It's resilience, Jer. Resilience. Mm. <laughs> and we're going to need a lot of resilience on the pitch tomorrow, right? Absolutely. We will. We absolutely will. Um, I don't know whether you watched any of or you got to see any of uh, Australia against France last week. Very impressed with them, I have to say. Um, I, I know I've been sort of tracking them over the last year without really seeing much footage, but I, I work with a couple of the, a couple of guys from Australia and listening to the results and hearing how they were doing. They weren't too impressed with the results about a year ago, but now they've started to go on a trajectory. I think they're unbeaten in a good few games, but I saw half of that game myself against France and, oh, I was very impressed with them. I thought they were very, very fit. Um looked really hungry, really sharp. They were quick to get up. Like they sort of sat deep to contain the French, but very quick on the break to support Sam Kerr. You know, with midfielders running, the wide players getting forward, everything we, we expect they're going to do, um, but really hungry. And then when they went one goal up, um, they were determined not to concede, you know. So I think it's going to be a tough task for us tomorrow. Is the glass half full from our perspective on that Australia performance against France, Sue, the the fact that that counter-attacking threat from Australia, I mean, when it comes up against, I guess, the seven-person defence in Ireland, it could be slightly more difficult. That's the issue, yeah. So, like, I mean, I, I expect us to sit deep, really, to be honest, to contain, uh, to try to contain the Australians. So they're going to have to try and navigate their way around that because they are really, a, they're a very direct team. They're a counter, they're a counter-attacking team, really. So, yeah, how is that going to work when, when they're having to face um, a very low block? You know, so that's something I'm sure they've been working on themselves. But, you know, I, I still think, I still fancy us to get a, a point, to get something out of the game. Um, I, I feel, I really feel we won't lose it. 
um, maybe put my neck on the block there, but I, I think we, we've enough in us to get a result. Um, and whether that's just a defensive um, performance and containing them, you know, and trying to hit them down the counterattack, I think that probably will be our philosophy to start. But I, I do think, you know, listen to all the interviews, looking at what's going on. The players seem to be well up for this. And, you know, there's going to be nerves on both sides. Of course, there's going to be nerves for our team. Most of them haven't played in front of 82,000 uh, fans. Um, there'll definitely be nerves on the Australian side. They're hosting the, the World Cup. They're the host nation. There's a lot of expectations on their shoulders. Um, but look, what an occasion. What an occasion. Wish we were all there watching it rather than back home. It's obviously been a roller coaster for various reasons in the build up. The news this morning that Denise O'Sullivan is going to start, it's incredibly important. Like, you can't overstate the importance in terms of uh, the surge of energy that that's going to give the team. Like, both yeah. Vera and Katie in the press conference this morning by uh, Kathy was at it and was like, Katie's interrupts now, we're very relieved. This is like, this is, this is yeah. about as good news as it could have been. It's almost as if Roy Keane came back after Saipan. Yeah. No, for sure. Denise is hugely important to this team. And, you know, I mean, the, the, you look, we, we all look at Katie and she's the leader and, and um, the high profile player, I guess, probably on this side of the, the world because she's playing for Arsenal. We hear maybe see more about how she's doing with her club than we would Denise. But for me, Denise is vital to this team. She's a vital cog. She's the playmaker of midfield. The amount of work that girl does, her ability on the ball, her ability off the ball, you know, to fill gaps, to see danger, to, to press players. She's urging her teammates around her. Like she, she probably has a little bit more of an impact on the whole team because of where she plays. Um, because Katie is is maybe a little bit more isolated on the left hand side. But you know, for me, it's such such a good news story that Denise was uh, is fit and for herself personally, it would have been a travesty if she missed out on you know this occasion to show her ability on the world stage. But from an Ireland point of view, it would have been such a loss. And yeah, I'm not sure how we would replace her to be honest. She brings that little bit of aggression as well, so doesn't she? We, we kind of spoke after the the uh, defeat to France in the friendly game. Uh, at Tallis Stadium how you know she gets that yellow card laid on and it was Ireland's first yellow card of the match and maybe you'd like to see a little bit more not of yellow cards but of of I guess controlled aggression and Denise certainly has that in spades Absolutely and she, generally she doesn't get yellow cards because she's so good in the tackle her timing is so good but she definitely is aggressive and if you, if you watch her off the ball like you know she you know she's biting all the time when we don't have the ball she's always biting she's always where the ball is you know because she's so fit she's so physically fit for a small slight girl you know she's really really fit and as I said she reads the game so well but hugely important to us Um Personally, I'd like to see her with a little bit more license to get forward in the middle of the park. I, I'd like to see um, us use, uh, say, Megan Connolly in there, which would give that little bit more maybe uh, defensive stability. And Denise would could be the, the number eight stroke 10 type player, you know, the box to box player and affect our attack in the final third because she has that in her locker. She can see the pass. She can slip it in behind uh, the defenders or through the gaps, you know, um, that's her style of play. She's not going to get on the ball and spray balls like from the left side of midfield out to the right wing. Megan Connolly can do that, but you know she has that in, in her ability to play in, in her locker to play maybe a little one two around the edge of the box or slip a ball through for one of the forwards to get a strike on goal. Um, so from my point of view, I would like to see her a bit bit further forward. But look, I think she she she's hugely important for us, and it's a huge relief that she is fit. Um, how do we like? There's, there's definitely two schools of thought where, uh-oh, Australia 
Home Nation, 80,000, Cathy Freeman and speaking to them before, this could go pear-shaped early. And here's the thing, if it does go pear-shaped early, there's still two other matches for us to scrap and try and get four points from to get out of. So, you know, um, we have been in in, uh, tournaments where things have gone pear-shaped for us and there's no recovery. But they need to show the resilience if that does happen. And at the same time, there's also an opportunity for us to just get in under the, the skin of the Australian team who will feel all that pressure, who will feel the pressure of Cathy Freeman winning the gold medal in Sydney and like, oh, in the stadium, we have to match that. And if we're not matching it after 15 minutes or 25 minutes or 35 minutes, that's where we can start to just get at them. So how do you pitch that as a manager? Like, what are you talking about this week to them to make sure that the occasion doesn't overawe them, but that actually we use that to our advantage? I think you're reminding them of all the knockbacks they've had over the years and all the setbacks. You know, I think we've spoken a lot now on on this show about the resilience of this team. And, you know, I think there was a huge disappointment after not qualifying for the last Euros. We know it and the circumstance in which they went out. And then to see our near neighbours who, you know, no disrespect to Northern Ireland, were a much better team than them for them to qualify. I mean, that that hurt the players badly. I'm sure it hurt the management as well. But those players had been around a long time. I mean, they knew their time was now. They knew everything was there for them, you know, to make them, to help them perform to the best of their ability. And they just let it slip out of their grasp. So I think that and other knocks they've had over the years, you know, coming back from injuries, all the different things they've gone through. We've talked about the strike, everything. I think they've just built up such a bank of resilience and I don't think they fear anyone now. I mean, we saw them go out against USA and they were excellent in the two games against USA. Um, okay, we maybe didn't play so well against France. I I, I, I can't comment too much now because I was away, I didn't see it. But um, from, from what I hear, France went through the gears and, and were a level above us. But, you know, I, I definitely think we have it in our locker on any given day to trouble a team. And, and certainly a team like Australia, as I've mentioned before, they're not one of the top five, six teams in the world who do find that way to win. Like against USA when we were so good, but yet they found a way to win. Um you know, I think they're going to relish the occasion. They're going to, Vera is going to stress there's no pressure on their shoulders. There's no expectations. The whole nation's behind them. You know, I just think they're going to go out and enjoy themselves. I'd be surprised if they're caught by nerves. Of course, there'll be that tension as early on, but I think they'll be able to pull themselves out of it. Talk about the hope that uh, we get a draw out of this one. Sue, so, like, there is the hope there as well. Let's say we, we were to touch wood, it doesn't happen, but go, go, go behind. Like we found it difficult to create chances in games of late. Um, now the running of the likes of Marissa Shiva and Kira Krusa helps to that end and causes a bit of disruption. But uh, do you have that hope that we can create enough chances to, to kind of score goals in this group? That's a fifty million dollar question with this team, isn't it? We're we're very good at keeping opponents out, and we're very good at scoring set play goals. But we haven't, and you know, free kicks, corners, particularly. I suppose we haven't scored too many from open play, and that's the danger. Um, we have maybe a couple of players who could spring from the bench. You have obviously Amber Barrett has come on and done really well and has scored goals. If we're behind against Australia, they're going to sit deep too, I think. And Amber's game is probably in behind, so that mightn't suit her. So you might be, you might be looking at, do you throw in an Abby Larkin who has it, you know, has that little bit of skill and swagger and maybe no, no fear, you know, maybe just to get at them. And they probably don't know anything about her either. So. Hopefully we might have one or two from the bench that we could spring, but I, I would hope, yeah, I would hope that we don't fall behind because we, you know, I think we could be relying on a set play to equalise, as I say, especially against Australia, who won't 
be too open. They'll sit themselves. They look to hit care on the break then. If they've gone 1-0 up, they'd be quite happy with that. Defensively, as I mentioned against France, they were just so, so solid looking and, and determined and bodies on the line. And they've got some big players in there, like Alana Kennedy, who plays at City and... Yeah, although there was one or two, we were talking about injuries and in that game against France, they had a, took a couple of knocks as well. One was sort of innocuous thing, another was a bad tackle. And the, so I think two, from what I'm reading there online, those two players who'd be important players for them, um, maybe uh, a doubt, which would could potentially play into our hands. I think Tamika Yallop, who was very, very good, um, she, and she, she's a doubtful, I think, and Kaya Simon uh, potentially also. I don't think they took part in the last, tra- last training session, but look, you don't know what's going on in the coach's mind. They may line up against us, but um, either way, they've got some very, very good players, but I'm still hopeful we get the draw tomorrow. Sue, with all the stuff that has been published in The Athletic about Vera and her response to that and the fact that, that has become a talking point in the build-up. Now, it's been parked, it seems, for the last couple of days. How difficult is it for a squad to get over a distraction like that? And how important is it that they actually deal with it and make sure that everybody is is comfortable with uh, the story, the treatment of and the response from the players, the FAI and from Vera as well? How do you deal with something like that as a group? I'm sure they've had their chats about it, you know. I'm sure they, they've had lots of meetings, lots of discussions. Uh, um, and really, I suppose, at the end of the day, as, as both Vera and Katie said at the press conference immediately afterwards, they just want to put it behind them now and they don't want it to be a distraction in the World Cup. And I think the players now, with the majority of them, if not all of them playing professionally, I, I think that's sort of really been drilled into them now that they can leave off-pitch matters aside when it really comes to it and not let it affect them, you know, so... I think they'll be fine on that matter. I don't think I don't think it's going to bother them at all during this tournament or interfere in their their thinking or their planning or preparation for for the games. So we've no excuses really. It's, a, it's as well prepared a team as it could be. They, I mean, obviously the the Columbia game was a bit of a disaster in retrospect, but uh, they also seem to have dealt with that relatively well. Um, yeah. And like we're here now, Denise Sullivan is fit. Yeah. How we got here is 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 all story. It is all a story of resilience. Yeah, it is. And and we have no excuses now. Um, when I say we've no excuses, we've no excuses to not be able to perform to the best of our ability. And whether that's good enough at the end of the day, only time will tell. And as you know, things can go, you can still perform to the best of your ability in a game and something can go badly wrong. You know, you just switch off for a minute, you concede or a referee gives a bad decision, there's a penalty against you, whatever. Or you get a player sent off for an innocuous tackle. So, you know, even the best prepared teams, something can go wrong that knocks them off their stride. But there's no excuses for them not to be able to perform to the best of their ability because, you know, everything is, the preparation has been spot on, the lead up right up to the, to the to the preparation even you know all the resources are in place for them they don't want for anything now so they seem to be in a nice uh, home base camp in, in in Brisbane um i'm sure they've gotten gotten the jet lag thing right as well i know all the the club all the countries were getting their advice and doing what they should be doing so i'm sure they've got that as well you know spot on as well as they can um so yeah it's just get out there and play now and and give it your best shot because for some of those players they'll never get to a world cup again no. uh, that's the reality of it you know no this is it it's uh, it's history in the making sue good stuff thanks a million thanks guys take care enjoy the game Let's see Ronan giving us her thoughts there. Uh, right, tomorrow's show, we have the arrival of the World Cup finally here. 
the legend that is Linda Gorman is going to be in studio with us. We'll have Luke Connolly, who's brother of Megan, former Cork senior footballer himself, en route to the stadium to watch his sister. Kathleen will be outside the ground filling and will predict the outcome live in studio. We'll also have Seamus Hickey on Limerick. Shane here is going to be live on the road visiting Kilkenny and Limerick ahead of the weekend. And plenty more besides. Safe trip, Shane. Yeah, looking forward to it. Should be fun. OTB AM. The Sports Breakfast Show from Off the Ball.